Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to episode 187 with my guest Susanna Lee. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code MENTAL at the checkout. A better web starts with your website. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. The show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room. That oh. It's more like a vet. Better pause here. I think my wife just got home. There we go. That, that in a nutshell, is uh, what it sounds like in our house about every two hours. Somebody will crunch a leaf outside, a FedEx truck will pull up, uh, anything will happen. And one barks and the other barks at the other one barking, and then the other one barks at the other one barking. Um, the website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, check it out. Read a blog, uh, take a survey, see how other people filled out surveys, um, support the show, donate to it. Uh, go fuck yourself. That that was a little harsh. Ugh, I'm hating myself right now because I say that all the time. I feel like I'm just regurgitating. Ooh, I'm in kind of, I'm in kind of a um, very self-critical uh, mode right now. Um, maybe because I'm tired. I don't know. Whew, I really want to start erase this and start over, but I'm going to plow ahead. God bless those of you that sent me emails and encouraged me to be honest and try to ignore my uh, perfectionist angst moments and just plow through them. All right. Um, this is a struggle in a sentence. Survey, this was filled out by Crystal. 
About her depression, she writes, like living in Sleepy Hollow while the rest of the world lives in eternal sunshine. Uh, about having an anorexia, I once could see every bone in my body. I remember crying in the bathtub. Um, this was filled out by Dan, uh, who writes, uh, about his depression, a perennial sense of seeing the world through a pane of glass. Oh my God, do I relate to that one? Uh, anxiety, the motions of everyday human life are excruciating to go through. Um, about uh, his anorexia, the most effective means of disappearing. Snapshot from his life. Six months ago, my relationship of 10 years was slowly collapsing. I decided to articulate my deep unhappiness by seeing how little food I could survive on. Despite becoming dangerously underweight, my partner barely noticed what was happening, and I felt even more worthless for having tried to make this gesture. The relationship has ended, but I still feel trapped in this cycle of shame. I've cut off all contact with anyone from my past, and I avoid human contact as much as possible. Uh, this one is filled out by... She calls herself, I hate myself far more than anyone else ever could. Well, hey, it's good to come in first at something. Uh, she writes about her anorexia. A lot of uh, uh, people uh, in the surveys uh, tonight... Um, Talking about anorexia. Um, she writes, uh, that, that was Herbert, by the way. She writes, having a constant, unrelenting, critical voice in your head taunting you 24-7, reminding you all the ways you have failed, telling you how you will never be good enough, echoing warnings that you ate too much and that you ate the wrong things, haunting you with numbers that keep you up at night, haunting you with false truths that you can't help but conform to. Soon that voice becomes the only one you believe you can trust because it wants what you want. Uh, it wants you to be skinny. It makes you believe everyone else is against you because they want to get rid of the eating disorder. But you feel like you need him after all he wants what you want. You think he's helping you, but he's killing you. He has turned your mind against you. That is profound. That is, that is profound about her PTSD, to constantly be stuck inside the past, reliving the worst times of my life. Having even the littlest things, like someone raising their voice or someone dropping an object, create a panic attack, and then panic even even more because the feeling of not breathing takes me back to when he wouldn't let me breathe. Like my abuser will haunt me as long as I live while he's out there living his life acting like it never happened, believing that he did nothing wrong, never owning up to it, making me feel like I'm not even worthy of my own feelings. Uh, and then this one is uh, same survey filled out by a teenager who calls herself, I'm sorry, but I'm mad about her depression. She writes, the only thing you feel any positive emotional connection to is sleep. <laughs> oh boy, do I relate to that one. And a snapshot from her life, she writes, Sometimes when I'm anxious, I, ju I just take... She writes, Sometimes when I'm anxious, I just take a few deep breaths, a friend tells me as I have a panic attack. I get that she's trying to be helpful, that I should appreciate her compassion and care, but sometimes I just get so fucking mad that people think my suffering is something that can be handled by a few deep breaths. Like what I'm feeling is something they've felt like I'm not... I'm just not as good as they are at managing average baseline human stress. Please, just shut up. This isn't stress. No, you don't know what I'm going through. Just get me some fucking water. Oh, God, I wish I didn't need to take meds. 
flat out fucking auditory hallucinations. I would literally wake up running from my bed. I'm afraid that I'll pass my anger on to my son. I thought the gunman was my father. Afraid of not being able to make a living. Um, that's probably going to break his heart if he hears it, but that's that's the truth. They committed him to Bellevue. There was this fear that if I feel this pain, I wish someone could see what was going on and just help me, that it will kill me and I will die and I will drown. You can't think your way out of a thinking problem. And I cried the way that a baby cries. I cried like an animal. It makes me so mad at myself that I do that. The burden of perfectionism. And that's when I got to therapy. Let's talk about that. So I was like, fuck it, I'm alive. I don't give a shit about anything. You are a shining example of what is best about human beings. I'm worried that the uh, Russian militia is coming over the hill. I know that, uh, but uh, Alice, how you feeling? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> like I- I'm here with Susanna Lee, uh, who is a comedian uh, who's recommended to me as a guest by Mick Betancourt. And I also found out as we were walking up the stairs to come record that you are a listener uh, to the show, which yes. is which is uh, nice to know. And uh, Mick said you have to record her. She's so, such an open book. Uh, and um, she, to supplement her income as a comedian... She uh, also strips and occasionally does um, some sex work. And uh, is that, is that a, a, an accurate description of yeah. what's what's going on? Yes, absolutely. Okay. I'm, a, I'm a comic and my side job is a sex worker. Okay. Um, boy, where to where to even where to even begin? There's you're a comic. You you know how to tell a story. Um, <laughs> I don't. Uh, where, what where would you we, like to know? Where do we start? There's a you know there's a, always a thousand questions I want to ask ask my guests and listeners to the podcast. know oftentimes I've asked a thousand questions in the first five minutes, mm-hmm. and because uh, I can't wait for them to finish an answer because I've, I've got another <laughs> question that I that I want to ask them. Um, well, first let me ask the the. Um, when you say a sex worker, what what does that not graphically the details of what it involves, but mm-hmm. um, because there's all different types, you know, there's a street walker, there's a high price call girl, and a you know, working at a yeah Vegas hotel or whatever. Well, currently I work at um, two places uh, that I believe the slang term would be Jack Shacks. Uh, proper term we do private shows. We do private shows. Some people call it lingerie modeling, but it's just private, fully nude shows. And before that, I worked at a peep show, which is where I filmed my web series, Peeping Comics. And before that, I was at a just a topless strip club. And before that, I didn't live in L.A., uh, but I've done phone sex and I've done, uh, you know, picking up a little extra money on Craigslist here and there with various things. And, um, you know. How do you how do you feel as you share that stuff? Um fine. Fine. You know, it's nothing I haven't talked about before. So, it's fine. It's 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 uh I think it's a little if anything about it is nerve-wracking, it's just that I don't know you and so and you're 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 a good poker face. So, mm-hmm. it's kind of it's kind of difficult to know exactly what i should and shouldn't say or how i should say it so why uh, why what what would the 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 fear be from that's so funny because to me i think boy i i can't imagine 
um, I I feel like there's nobody I judge harder than myself, and uh, like think, any go- yeah. and any guest walking through the door, you know, I think the only person that I would maybe judge or get angry w- with would be somebody who's actively abusing somebody else. You know, somebody who is actively beating a spouse, molesting a child, beat, oh. beating up an elderly person. Anything short of that, uh, I'm like, hey, high five. We're, <laughs> we're still alive. Yeah. You know what I mean? We're, oh, yeah. And um, I, I got my freaky side. You know, I got, um, I'm, anybody that listens to this podcast knows I'm an exhibitionist. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to be seen. I want to be felt. I want to be heard. And that can extend into my sexuality as well. So, you know. Do you see comedy as being exhibitionism? Absolutely. Me me too. I do too. Absolutely. I used to, you know, when I was younger and thinner, um, you know, like if I'd be walking up to the stage and like, you know, sometimes women would catcall or, you know, Mm -hmm. say, nice ass, you know, and they'd all kind of, you know, go, you know, and then they'd giggle or whatever. It was a high. It was a high for me. Yeah, for sure. It was, I mean, it's not the reason why I got into comedy, but um, I I used to think to myself, that has got to be such a great job being a male stripper because the idea to me of having a, um, women just objectify me is very, very arousing uh, to me. I never even knew there was this thing called, uh, what is it, CF Clothed Female Nude Male, CFNM. The first time I stumbled across that on the internet, Mm -hmm. I realized that's a thing. And I watched some of these videos, and it's Mm -hmm. basically women, you know, objectifying guys. Mm -hmm. And it was super, super powerful to me. So that's when I was like, oh, yeah, that's definitely a a thing so i don't yeah. i i feel like you in in many ways you've kind of lived uh a part of something that i have in my soul but i could or wouldn't um just because of w- whatever well i think I that uh, i can completely relate to what you're saying actually about the high of being desired mm-hmm. the high of having people just outwardly desire you and and show you and and objectify you you know uh for someone that never felt attractive there was i think that there was the allure of that with i got into burlesque before i ever stripped in a club i did burlesque and um and i think that there was that allure that finally someone thinks i'm hot you know, look at, they love watching me. They love seeing this. And then at the strip club, I was a terrible, I was a terrible stripper, like stage stripper, really, really bad. Why? Why? Um, I'm not a, you know, it, I'm, it's interesting when I was at the peep show, I was fantastic. Cause that's one-on-one, one-on-one. I got it. No problem. But when I was on stage in front of a a group of men and I wasn't talking my strong point is is or my you know is using words that's as a comic that's that's all I've done and so to be up on stage in a familiar place but doing something that uh you know I was uh at the time I was a bigger than most of the other strippers not all of them there was a couple of girls bigger than me but they were sassy black girls it was okay for them to be bigger but uh you know going out there and being on stage in front of a group of men that didn't want to see me it was 
it was really interesting how I felt more desired with my clothes on in comedy than I did with my tits out in a strip club. And that changed when I went to the peep show. And, it, and at the Jack Shacks, it's it's definitely a high to have a stranger come in and, pl- you know, plop down like 300 bucks just to be in a room with me naked. You know, they don't know if anything else is going to happen, but they're going to put down all that money just to see me naked. And that's a that's a real... Uh, you know that's how a, could it how could it not be yeah and then you 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 know excuse me for getting graphic but yeah. you get to visibly see how turned on they are by you, you get to oh yeah you know when you yeah when you talk about talk about that when yeah to have like to have a man well to have a man uh masturbate in front of you to you there's no there's no doubt about what they're they're not there uh, jerking off thinking about someone else or they're not there jerking off like watching porn they are there for the specific purpose of masturbating to you you've never had a guy say I'm actually I'm thinking about my wife right now oh no yeah um they but but does a part of your brain ever say you shouldn't you shouldn't be objectifying yourself like this. Um, no. People say that this is not healthy for you to no. do this. No, I don't think that uh, I've I don't think I've ever felt exploited at work. I think I've felt exploited in my personal relationships because of work. I think that um, I I feel at work where they use it against you. A boyfriend will use it against you or no. girl, girlfriend. No, where I feel like I'm being my my kindness or my time or my sexuality is being taken advantage of, and I think that the can you, can you be more specific? Yeah, because I don't. Yeah, uh, the uh, negative uh, part of of the sex work is that there are strangers that will put down three hundred dollars to see me naked to not even touch me three hundred four hundred two hundred whatever. I'm just saying three hundred as a sure. as a term. It's a common tip, uh, and then I in my personal relationships date date someone who who treats me like shit who doesn't want to go places with me doesn't want this you know and and it's hard to it's hard to have that in my personal life when in my in my work life it's so different do you feel that the way the the part of the reason why they treat you that way is mm-hmm. because they because of the work you do outside of their relationship no why do you let them treat you that way then it's the the search for search for love you, you know bo- are you bored by guys who are completely into you and oh yeah present oh of okay. course okay yes. so you like the bad yeah the bad no boys, i the like the challenge sure. i like to have to try and i need to win the love i need to win the affection you know my dad was never just a gender of course somewhere. of course it's yeah. daddy issues i mean sure. if you meet a stripper and she doesn't have daddy issues you've met a liar you know of course if you met a stripper you've probably you've You've met, met a liar, liar. you know, <laughs> and I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean like you know, it's a, it's a role. Like as a as a stripper, as a sex worker, you are there to fulfill a certain role, and and it's not just fulfill a certain you know uh, action role. Like you have to be a certain person. You have to put on a certain face. It's it's an acting role. The, the thing that always bothered me when I went to strip clubs, and I and I don't go to them uh, anymore because it's it's not a, a healthy thing for me. Mm-hmm for me to 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 go there because a lot of guys get into the shame addiction of it yeah and but what i always disliked in it was the condescending attitude towards the customer 
as if they were a little like a a, a child. And I know there's a childish quality of men going to this place Mm -hmm. to see this, but there was an intellectual condescension as if the transaction that is taking place, me paying you to, you Mm -hmm. know, show me your private parts as if it, as if it couldn't be dealt with in a way that had more nuance and intellect to it um you know uh to me the thing that 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 would turn me on it would be when a woman would sit down and she would have a conversation and she would take the mask off and i know it's probably not safe for them it's probably easier to get through your day keeping the mask on of yeah. keeping that part of yourself that you don't want anybody to see, that you want to keep outside of the club. But for me, I wanted to see a human being mm-hmm. who also had a body that, sure. that turned me on. And I wanted to be able to connect on things. And there's sometimes, you know, I would be conversing with a woman and 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 the conversation would naturally evolve. And, you know, I would find out things about her and how she felt about her job and stuff like that. And then it became, I could be comfortable in that situation. Mm-hmm. But outside of that, it just always kind of grossed me out, the 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 falseness yeah. between a, uh, the client and the, and the stripper. I always had a problem with that. I always hated it when I was at the strip club and, and uh, you know, we'd go out and out back to the back patio and we'd smoke and there would be customers out there. So the girls would would <laughs> giggle, giggle. We're <laughs> we'd like to play with each other's oh, boobs. Oh, my and, God. That is so boring to me. Yeah. And then we go back in the dressing room and they're just the chill girls I was sitting with, you know, but outside you got to be ha <laughs> ha. Well, Why? men like this. Why? Men Why? will tip me. I don't because you, you're hungry for a dollar and you you get into something like that and you learn by watching i want to i want to punch the men that like that i want to punch them you know they they don't go there the thing is most men don't go to strip clubs to to meet real women or to to find out anything about real women to even to even you know look at a woman on stage and think that something could come out of her mouth uh you know that you know unique or, or 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 honest you know most guys don't go that for that they don't go there for the conversation i think that comics are different different people not just in a strip club i think that comics are different in general because i think that we search to relate you know we search you know for for the genuine person for the authenticity i, and, I like to think that we're three-legged dogs looking for other three-legged absolutely dogs. absolutely and you go in a place like that and i think that there's i think that there's uh more of a subtle connection, not just like the gross body connection. And I don't mean gross, like, ooh, gross, like, ooh, gross. I mean, like, just the more than just like, I'm here, that girl's pretty. I think that uh, certain types of people and certain types of personalities and souls seek out each other. And I think that pain seeks out pain. And comedians, um, or I don't know, I shouldn't talk about all comedians. Uh, I know that myself, like, comedy comes from pain. And... I think that, you know, in sex work, most sex workers have a lot of pain, too. Mm -hmm. So I think that, I don't know if there's a natural connection. I don't know if that sounds stupid. No. You might have to edit that out. (laughs) (laughs) No. I I completely agree. And I think intimacy 
you know, if it doesn't if it doesn't fall into trauma bonding, intimacy, yeah. be it between two friends getting to know each other, two people on a fifth date starting to be intimate, or somebody in a long term relationship, ultimately it's about. My therapist used this phrase. He said, "You show me your wound, and I'll show you mine." Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that to me is a real turn on because yeah. it, it's you're really being seen. And yes, just, yeah, I love looking at boobs. I love looking at vaginas and, mm-hmm. you know, all all of that stuff. But in the absence of, of getting to see a little bit behind the mask, yeah. it just it, it's a, it annoys me because it just it feels insulting yeah. to, to, to me. To have that kept from you? To have that kept from me. Like, I can't handle it or I'm going to. But I suppose there are the guys that do take Most advantage guys. of it. And then they're in the parking lot stalking you. And I guess, yeah, you know, maybe they should give you a t-shirt that you can wear in there that says, uh, I'm not a stalker. You can open up to me a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I mean, that's the thing. Like, that's not why the strippers are there. You know, they're not there for a connection with a person. They're there to make money. But... So it has I, I, to be business, hustle, hustle, hustle. But I guess my point would be mm-hmm. is with certain customers, you could make more money if you could connect, if you could yeah. reveal some part of your soul to them that yeah. didn't make them feel um, condescended to. Uh, yeah, there's, I mean, there's... I guess there's girls that do that with their regulars. I mean, I know girls who have regulars that will uh, pay for their their tickets to go home and visit their family, or they'll pay for the the girls. Uh, a girl at the Peep Show had a, a regular that paid for her daughter's birthday parties every year, mm. and bought her a car uh, for well for her boyfriend to drive. I don't know that that was his intent, but. Huh. Um, <laughs> You know, I mean, like, they know, there. there's regulars, there's people that, you know, there's guys that these girls have seen for so long that they've right. become a lot more of an intimate connection, a lot more of an honest connection. You know, I had, I've had a couple regulars that have known my real name. I had one that knew where I lived. Um, there's a trust that's established. Okay. Just, just the way there is with, with any other relationship, but it's, you know, generally not going to happen just right well, at the strip club, I, you know. Well, when I when I did go, I would go maybe twice a year. So yeah, I'm yeah. was never a regular, and and I also don't know what some of the worst experiences that strippers or sex workers had or have had. So I can't begin to fathom the walls that need to be yes. up to protect themselves. I'm ju- I was just talking selfishly about uh-huh. from my point of view about what I had wished when oh, I yeah. went in there was was different about the experience. I'm mm-hmm. not saying you guys should be this way. That's that's You want them to emotionally strip for you. Yes. Like yes, take off your bikini, that's nice and all, but now open up your brain. Yeah. Let me see what's in there. You know, in many ways that's what this that's what this show is. Yeah. With um men and women and I I I get such a um I don't even know what the word is for, but when somebody opens up their soul to me, especially the part that they struggle with, that mm-hmm. they're afraid of being judged by, yeah. and I can say to them, oh my God, I don't judge you at all. I'm just like you. And I can see them get emotional. Mm-hmm. That's like sex to me. <laughs> That's like... 
I understand completely. You know, I think that being around <clears throat> being around sex and being around nudity and all the sexuality and all the like uh you know um all the dirty stuff. I don't really I used to love porn. I so rarely watch it anymore. And seeing people naked is not really I don't know, it's not a thing for me. Like, it doesn't shock me anymore. Sexuality doesn't shock me anymore. It doesn't really make me raise my eyebrows. It doesn't It doesn't get me. But, you know, yeah, having someone open up to me, that's, that's amazing. Like, that's what I want. That's my goal is tell me something you haven't told anyone. The very, I like very amateur, very like homemade type stuff. Because I like the realism of it. Because I've seen, like, you see so much of the produced porn. You see so much of the, you know, okay, now you're going to do this, you're going to do this, you're going to act like you enjoy it, you're going to say this when he does that. So are you talking about visually or... Um... I'm talking about it's all so created. It's all so contrived. It's all yeah. so created. And it's, uh, it's just, it's a job, you know? I don't know if it was working with girls that had done porn uh, that kind of... I mean, there was never, there was never like a, a much of a mystique to it, uh, but it was just, it was just somehow hot to watch people have sex. Not to think about like, oh, I wonder what their relationship is like. I wonder if you know, does does he like her mom? Or you know, I mean, you mm -hmm. know, it's not like to create this backstory of these people being together or anything. It was just watching the animal act of sex, uh, and now. It's hard. It's like, you know what? It's, it's like watching a regular movie. When you are not exposed at all to the, to the movie industry, to the entertainment industry, you can really do the suspension of disbelief and you can really get into a story. But then if you've been around it enough, you start looking for different things, especially like in comedy too. As a comedian, b before you're a comedian, you go watch stand up and it's great. It's fun. You enjoy yourself the way an audience <laughs> member should. Yes. And then... And everything makes you laugh. And you're like, this guy's oh, amazing. Super funny. Where'd he come up with that? Yeah, yeah. These are not even real people. They're just, yeah, they're just um, idea machines. They're just great. How'd that guy come up with that comeback? That's yeah, hilarious. Yeah. Or you don't even think about that. You know, And you don't even think about the fact that it's, they know what they're going to say, you know? Yeah. You don't think, and then you do comedy, and, and then you never watch it the same again. And then the curtain comes down, and the little man that is Oz is behind there, yes. and you're like, oh my God. God, that guy's not a brilliant comedian. He's a sad, lonely guy uh -huh. that is using derivative, yes. horseshit material. Uh -huh. And other comics or, hate him. Yeah, or the opposite. Or he's brilliant. He's doing this. He's employing this tactic. He's doing that. Look how he gets the audience to do this that way. And you, you know, you know the technical stuff, so you watch for that. Instead of enjoying it purely as an entertainment, you you watch it as an industry insider. And I'm, I'm not saying like I'm a porn industry insider, but you know, I've certainly been around, um, that sort of thing enough to, to, to where the mystique has worn off of it. So it's no longer, you know, like now I watch, if I watch porn, uh, you know, if I do, if it's not like the amateur, like homemade, like you can tell this person did this with a flip, like a flip cam uh, or on an iPhone or something. And, and that's kind of hot because that's real sexuality. Those, those are usually people that, that don't know how to just act it about it. They have to, they're really having sex, you know, and they're not a, doing it for money, right? Cause well, I mean, depending, but you know, they're not doing it because they're, they're under contract, right? You know? <laughs> Yeah. 
they might do it because that dude in the van offered them 200 bucks and you know oh that, that kind of amateur stuff oh, oh, that I kind of amateur stuff or any of it you know yeah, i see i mean the, i suppose yeah the homemade video like the two people in love to i don't really know i'm not really into that uh i'm not really into porn with much intimacy you know i think it just makes me upset yeah how so? yeah jealous jealous upset um disbelief you know it's a suspension phony. of disbelief feels phony to you yeah yeah how so, how so? uh like that like i've just i think i've just hit the point with relationships to where i've lost some belief in their ability to to really to be that pure goodness and so i think i've just i think i've just jaded myself out of uh talk more about enjoying that. um anyone else's intimacy um I don't know if it's that I don't know if it's that I don't believe in anybody else's uh, ability to have that like that pure, honest, intimate connection because everyone's different. I just think that maybe my own inability to have that creates such jealousy that I don't want to. I don't want to see it rubbed in my face, you know. And it's the same way with regular movies too. I, I hate a happy ending. I hate a happy ending. Yeah, hate it. It's a Wonderful Life can suck a dick. I hate that movie. Hate it. I've always hated that movie. No, you know, the angel gets his wing. No, angel gets their fucking wings, you know? I've never sat through it. I, I've, I see clips of it, and I'm just like, man, it just feels like... Oh, my friend showed it to me once when I was living in Chicago, and I was going through a pretty difficult time, which is not necessarily unusual but she it was towards the and it's one of her favorite movies and she's like you just have to watch it once <laughs> and i was like i don't know about that just watch it for me okay i'll watch it okay i have never been angrier at the end of a movie i have never been more furious you want to put something on that screen this man oh he's a good person and then the, and the town rallies he doesn't kill himself and the town rallies around him and they give him <laughs> fucking money meanwhile I was like fucking a lawyer so he would do my taxes for free because I couldn't <laughs> afford H&R Block you know like don't show me something where, where, yeah. where a fucking angel gets his wings it doesn't happen it does not happen don't insult me and I don't understand how how you, that can't make you more optimistic about regular life. No, because it's it's not like well, gosh, things went great for that guy. Maybe they right. could for me too. <laughs> yes, no, exactly. somebody wrote things going well for that guy. They didn't just happen. I feel like that movie might as well be called Four Legged Dog. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Because when I I remember the first time I watched it and everybody was raving about it and I didn't watch the whole thing. I just went. This just doesn't feel true to me. Yeah. It just feels manipulative. Mm -hmm. And I do believe there are those moments in life where we do feel what the people who enjoy watching A Wonderful Life feel. But for me, mm -hmm. it's never through something like that. It's usually through just having a one-on-one -on -one conversation yes. with somebody who opens up and says, me too. Yeah. And we cry and we laugh. Or there's or or you have a legitimate good moment in life legitimately something works out yeah because the majority of the time it doesn't and i don't mean i don't mean just for me and i'm not just talking pessimistically i mean the majority of the time if everything that we really we really wanted to work out worked out what i mean what would be the point in any self-examination you know what would be the point in in doing anything if things just worked out 
I can't even, I can't even imagine life that way. I can't even imagine that being life because it's not, you know, and I just, I, oh, I tried to watch It's a Wonderful Life again two years ago. It was shortly after, yeah, I think it was the the first winter I lived here. So maybe three, see, I've been here since, two, so winter of 2011. Uh, I tried to watch that thing again because I thought, you know, maybe I can do it. You know, I, the first year in LA, I think I was pretty happy. And, uh, Ooh, God, no, couldn't, couldn't get through it. I, I think I, I think I sat through maybe 10 minutes, maybe 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite movie? Hmm. Or some of them? Some, well, <laughs> uh, since I was a kid, I loved Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band with the Bee Gees. It's a terrible, 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 terrible I've movie. Seen it. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that movie so much. I like really bad movies. I like, uh, animation. I like, um, I like movies where I can outwardly scoff at them, like Lifetime movies. I like that. Uh, I like, um, I really like the movie Hard Candy. Not because I could scoff at it, but because it was really, really, really dark. But it was really good. Did you see it? I saw a part of it flipping around mm-hmm. uh, through through the... But, you know, maybe 10 or 15 minutes. It's Ellen Page, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And the premise... To talk, talk about it. Um, this, she thinks a guy's a pedophile, right? He is a pedophile. He is. Yeah. Um, this guy and his friend... I believe they raped her friend. I don't know if they killed her friend, but they they raped D- her friend. Disney they, movie, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, princess movie. Um, her friend was Princess Jasmine. These bad, bad men that killed Princess Jasmine. They escape on a flying yeah. turtle, oh, yes. come back and cut yes. everyone's balls off. Uh huh. And then the lion was king. <laughs> Uh, they, she, she's a super, super, super smart young teenager and she, um, gets even with these guys. She really gives them come up and, and, and it's, it's, it is probably the darkest movie I've, I've ever seen. And I loved it so much. I loved these, these men that, that ruined her friend. I loved that they, they got what they deserved in a really sick, disturbed way. I think it really showed the depth of anger that she had for her friend, mm-hmm. you know, anger because of, because of love, you know? And, uh, I was just, it was great. Like the, she didn't focus on the other guy. I guess she had already killed him. Um, but it, the movie was just about her dealing with this this one guy who thought that he was just meeting another young girl, mm-hmm. and then she turns around and like fucking, I mean, she just fucks him. She drugs him and she like re, like uh, uh, neuters him pretty much, mm-hmm. and um, it's it's bloody and it's angry and it's horrible. It's suspenseful, and and he dies in the end. And that's a happy ending. <laughs> you know? Like that, I felt like that movie, even though, I mean, it's, it's well, like I said, it's a happy ending. It's a comeuppance. It's some asshole got what they deserved. It's not just like someone who was down on their luck that the town banded together and saved them because that shit doesn't happen. But some... It does. That stuff does happen. Mm. But I think most of our experiences are not 
that. I think that's more like the person. People win the lottery. They do. They do. They do win the lottery. And the thing that I would say is our job as people trying to get healthier, trying to find more happiness and peace in our life, our job is to begin to find networks of people where the chance of there being a lottery ticket is greater. Because I think when we associate with people who are familiar to maybe the dysfunction that Mm -hmm. we grew up with, because it feels familiar, Mm -hmm. and we know it, and we know what role to play, that lottery ticket's pretty hard to obtain. But I think when we get out of our comfort zone and get around people that are maybe not as edgy, um, the chance the chance for those happy endings, you know, I have a lot of friends today that will fucking rally around like somebody has to move out of a an apartment on twenty four hours notice. Mm-hmm. There's like twelve of us there the the next day moving this person out. Oh, yeah, um, circle of friends, circle of friends, and so I do see that stuff happen, but. Like other groups of people that I used to hang out with, mm-hmm. you wouldn't be getting your phone calls returned. Mm-hmm. It, it, so I, I personally, my life had to fucking tank and I had to find a new way of living for my chances to have happy endings improve. And I guess that's the point that I want to make is the world has has both. And I hope this doesn't come across as condescending. Maybe I should be doing a lap dance for you while I'm, while I'm uh, You're doing sharing. an emotional lap dance for me. It's perfectly fine. While I'm probably share- stick a 20 in your ear. <laughs> because I, I don't want the listener who's in a cynical place, who's experienced a bunch of rejection, to think that there isn't hope out there. Because I, I wouldn't be doing this podcast if I didn't believe that there was there was hope and goodness out there. But I I think I agree with what you're saying, which is that there's a lot more of this negativity out there in the world than is portrayed in the movies, and it's nauseating to sit yeah. through that and have that be held up as this is the holy grail of a movie because it shows what... I Well, I could- think that... Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I think that maybe my problem... Maybe to be more specific, my problem with happy endings is that they're they're not realistic happy endings and they set us up for disappointment or they've set me up for disappointment. I agree. Uh, John Hughes, like pretty in pink was one of my favorite movies. And now I think, I think it was, uh, I think it's, it just set me up for believing that, you know, you get the Hawkeye at the end. Sure. Sure. Everyone, everyone ends up happy. And the girl that's the misfit ends up with the guy that loves her and he'll stand up to his friends finally. And, uh, you know, I think that that sort of happy ending is just, just sets you up for, for a disappointment. So yeah, I'm not saying there's no happy endings. I certainly don't want to be like the, 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 you know, I don't want to be the anti-guest here, I guess. You know what I think is a great happy ending, and it's one of the most perfect movies ever made, is Broadcast News. Because it's not a happy ending. It's a realistic ending. Mm -hmm. Uh, Have you seen that movie? I haven't. Wait, is that with um, Holly Hunter? Yes. Okay, I've seen parts of it. one of the best movies ever made. Mm -hmm. It's it's about an important subject. It's well made. The character, Albert Brooks and Holly Hunter are fucking amazing. Mm -hmm. And William Hurt is great. 
it's just I can't I can't recommend it enough. And the ending is it's not necessarily happy, but it's real. And that yeah. felt happy to me because it was like the stripper didn't lie to me. Do you know what I yeah. mean? It's like there she didn't talk to me in a sing song voice and act like she was eight years old. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It was like, no, this is what happens in life. And it was satisfying because it was like, oh, they told me the truth through the entire movie. I feel like the movies that we hate mm-hmm. are like somebody that refusing to tell you that Santa Claus doesn't exist. It's like, no, yes. just fucking tell me he doesn't exist. And then we'll move on from there. Yeah. Then we'll deal yeah. with my next problem. Yes. Yeah. Some honesty. Some yeah. honesty. If you can make a happy ending and still stick with, with an, if you can make a happy ending and still keep an honest ending, that's, that's a world's greatest feat or the movie's greatest feat, I guess. I don't know. I'm not I a think, filmmaker. What am I talking about? I think that's <laughs> why I love the awful some moments that, that, um, that the listeners share something that happened to them in the past that was awful, but today they can laugh about because I think that's like in, in a negative ending for a movie, quote unquote negative. Mm-hmm. If there's just a shred of something that's real, then it feels truthful. And as a result, it feels happy because it feels like, okay, other people see the world the way I see it. I don't need people to get what their dreams were yeah. for the movie to be satisfying to me. I just need to know that they grew as a person and have more clarity about the universe at the end of it. That's why I think one of the fucking greatest movies is Saturday Night Fever. God, that movie is fantastic. And it ends in a way that is not quote unquote happy. And that's what's mm-hmm. so awesome about it. I've, I've not seen that one either. Oh, you have to see it. I know. I, I've seen. You so love the Bee Gees. Few... How would you? I know. I know. How no, would I you didn't not love the Bee Gees. I love the Beatles. But I... you won't, but you watched the Sgt. Pepper movie with the Bee Gees. Well, they didn't make one with the Beatles. So, yeah. You love the Beatles that much? I love the Beatles that much. We had this uh, music book, The Beatles Complete, with all the sheet music for all the Beatles songs when I was a kid. Uh, I played piano, and I would just sit there trying to trying to create in my mind a musical out of the songs from Sgt. Really? Peppers, out of the songs from the movie I would watch. And I, I uh, you know, I would sit there and, uh, try, and try and play the songs, and they go, okay, and then this will happen, and then we go to that song, and... Yeah, I love the Beatles. It was my first, my dad was a DJ, and the first concert I ever went to, it was sort of went to, was uh, when I was five. There was a, a band called the Beatles Complete, and it was an impersonation band. And oh, God. I mean, I loved the Beatles. And we had all the albums, all the original Apple recordings and stuff. And it was just, it was just everything to me. So the, the Beatles Complete, we had a, a drawer full of buttons from the show, and uh, I don't know. What I just remember when that drawer got empty because of me. Uh, what do you mean? Like we ran out of buttons and I could, I just couldn't have been sad or like no more Beatles completes buttons. Like pins, the pins, right. you know, and for some reason I would just take them and take them and take them and then lose them and lose them. And oh, lose okay. Them. I was like, where'd was they five. go? No, yeah. it was five, six, you know. No, I loved, I loved it. And I loved that movie, the colors and George Burns and the narrative. It was campy. And I loved Campy. I, I, and I still, Aerosmith was in there too. Yes, they sing. Everyone uh, was in there. Steve Martin was in there. Aerosmith. Um, oh, well, Peter Frampton mm-hmm. and the Bee Gees. Um, um, it couldn't have been more 1977. Yes, it was perfect. Or 79 or something. It was yeah. so late 70s. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
We used to have it on, on uh, VHS. I have it on VHS. Do you? Yes. That's hilarious. Yeah, I have a couple of VHSs that I'm really proud of. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and Alyssa Milano's Teen Steam. <laughs> she did a workout video in the 80s, and it's like... Um, it's like... Oh, it's like creepy softcore porn. <laughs> I can't imagine that anyone buying that video on eBay is buying it for any good reason. <laughs> now, I bought it for sentimental, sentimental reasons because I, when I was a you know preteen... I liked Bop Magazine, and I just wanted i wanted to win the phone call from Alyssa Milano. I was convinced we were going to be best friends. Kirk Cameron, he was going to be my boyfriend, you know. And so I, and so when Teen Steam came out, I remembered when it came out, and I remembered, you know, the fashion of the time and all that. So I found it at, um, I can't remember if I found it on eBay or if I found it at a thrift store. But I, I remember seeing it and being like, it's mine. Um, but that's neither here nor there, I guess. We're going to uh, take a pause here and give some love to our uh, our sponsors. Want to welcome back uh, Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast, super easy to create your own uh, professional website, portfolio, or online store. Um, I decided to put my money where my mouth was and uh, go ahead and create a Squarespace site um, with my dog pictures. Uh, I've taken a lot of dog pictures in my life, and so the uh, site is paul gilmartin.squarespace.com and you can check those out and it took me about an hour to um, put that site together they have tons of beautiful templates um, 24-7 support through live chat and email and um, their plans start at 8 bucks a month and that includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year and uh, you can see what your potential site would look like before you even um, spend any money there. So uh, I think that's a really cool way you can you can kind of check it out. So uh, for free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com um, and enter the offer code MENTAL at checkout. A better web starts with your website. Once again, squarespace.com and use offer code MENTAL. Also want to give some love to uh, Bulu Box, uh, who has been a great supporter of the show. Bulu Box is a uh, service that... Uh, it's a sample box service that uh, every month for 10 bucks they ship you a, um, a sample box of uh, vitamins, uh, supplements, nutritional products uh, that you can sample and then decide what you like so that you can order full-size versions of it. Um, that's just 10 bucks. Uh, that's free and you get free shipping with that. And uh, podcast listeners can get their first box absolutely free using promo code happy hour you just look for the little microphone in the upper left hand corner of uh the screen click on that and then you can enter the promo code happy hour um and blue box is spelled b-u-l-u-b-o-x so go to blue click on the mic enter promo code happy hour and uh Start some fucking sampling. I personally enjoy the Promax Low Sugar Protein Bar. Uh, I keep those in the car, and when my energy starts to get low, um, they're delicious, and uh, there's no sugar crash after them, which I uh, particularly hate when you snack on something, and then you wind up being even more tired than you were before. So, bootlubox.com. Click on the mic. Promo code happy hour. The thing I love about the Beatles is the breadth of the emotion that they put into their work. Mm-hmm. You know, that they can do a song like, uh, you know, Revolution, mm-hmm. number nine, and then they can do 
you know, a day in the life, and they could do yeah. yesterday. And See, like the older when I'm sixty four, like later Beatles. Well, you know, one of the the two albums I had growing up as a kid that mm-hmm. just never left my turntable from mm-hmm. like seven on were Revolver and Let It Be, mm-hmm. and they're I think why I so identified with that and why they became my favorite albums was because it expressed the melancholy mm-hmm. that I couldn't put into words as a kid. I would play Eleanor Rigby oh, over and yeah. over again, and it just felt real to me. Yeah. That felt like a happy ending to me. Even though it was a sad song, mm-hmm. that felt to me like, oh, somebody, this is what I'm feeling, yes. but I can't put into words. I feel like Eleanor Rigby. I feel like mm-hmm. that, you know, that... Um, I liked their movie Yellow Submarine too, and Eleanor Rigby was they used that in the movie, and it yeah. was um, animated. And I remember uh, Nowhere Man. I, I related a lot to that. That song is to this day when it comes on my shuffle. Mm-hmm. I just the harmonies in that are it, it goes through me like glass. Yeah, it's, I'm just I'm a lyrics person. I'm a real lyrics person. So. I, I'm a fan of, of later Beatles, older Beatles, you know, or not older, later, when they were older, but the, mm-hmm. the later Beatles, like after they found drugs and, you know, Eastern religion or whatever. I like that. I, I do too. But for me, the magic is, starts with Rubber Soul mm-hmm. and and is in Revolver. Mm-hmm. I, right when they started to grow their mop tops out a little bit, like 65, 66 yeah. to me is like the wheelhouse. That's... Mm. That's when they were just, there's some photos of them in the studio, and I think Mick Jagger's there too with them when they were recording Rubber Soul, and Paul McCartney's got these big black frame glasses on, and every time I see that picture, I just think, man, I, I want, I wish I could b- buy that picture. Anyway, I'm fucking getting off into, into <laughs> yeah. a cul-de-sac here. talking about the Beatles, yeah. not... Um, so, talk about emotionally what you what you struggle we haven't even talked about your childhood no we haven't well i love that we're 45 minutes in and oh, we haven't God. even talked about i'm so sorry that's okay sometimes i take a bit to warm up to new oh, people so you know no i've been talking okay. my ass off talk about what it was like um growing up for you i and i also want to talk about your go ahead okay um I have one older sister, uh, mom and a dad. They stayed married until I was 21. Um, they started talking about getting divorced when I was five. They probably should have done it then. Um, my childhood was, uh, I, I don't remember a lot of it. Um, I... That's usually not a good sign. Yeah, yeah. You know what they say. <laughs> yeah. Um, we moved from the city to the suburbs when I was nine. And I remember when I was in the city, now I have, it's, it's kind of, well, it's kind of weird. I have a few instances of, uh, uh, sexual abuse in the past, as many people do. And what's interesting is that two out of three of them, two out of three of the separate, it was three separate people, like different things and two of them happened when we were living in the city yet i remember living in the city as my happiest time because in the suburbs when we moved there 
I was immediately an outcast. Um, and that was, I think that was where I learned about depression and gave that a whirl and, uh, really found that it fit for me. And, um, that's where I learned about how horrible people are truly to the core. Some, not all, some, um, and how, where, where I saw that money can make people just, just foul, just absolutely horrible. Uh, my, can you be more specific about it? Yeah. Yeah. Stuff? Uh, yeah. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, stories you know are always what? good. Okay. Yeah. When I was in sixth grade, we, we, I was at this school called Trailwood Elementary and it was in, um, Overland Park, Kansas, very affluent suburb. Uh, we did not have the money to live in a place with that type of money. And, uh, from the time I moved there, people, the, the other kids were just, just shitty to me, just terrible. Nobody would be my friend. Nobody. Uh, the, the popular kids hated me. The she nerds hated me, except for one, occasionally Tanya and Nisi would come over to my place to play Barbie dolls, like under the shroud of darkness, because we were nine. That was far too old to be playing Barbie dolls. We were supposed to be trying to, to kiss the boys that played soccer. And, uh, I didn't wear I didn't wear white keds with no laces. I got flowered keds. Oh, that was a big mistake. I got black Reeboks. Big mistake. So no one would hang out with me. And then I I uh, hung out with the special ed kids until I got into an argument with Sarah Waddell, who was like the alpha uh, alpha special ed. We got into an argument about M and M's, and then they wouldn't be friends with me. So it was just just alone, alone. So in sixth grade. For some reason, I had offended Beth Fitzy. I don't remember what it was. I did something that just, oh, she hated it. And I think it might have been something I was wearing. And so she was just sending me shitty notes in class. And I was sending them back like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Just trying to, you know, I'm sorry. I don't know how I offended you. I'm so sorry. And she just wouldn't let up. And I mean, these people were, they were assholes to me. There's no other word for it. They were just evil children evil children raised by hideous adults. And I remember sending like just being at the end of and like, I didn't know what else to say. So I sent her back a note that was like, look, I'm sorry, what do you want me to do? Kill myself. And that's, you know, just same with text today, you can't tell someone's tone. So she took the note up to the teacher, they thought I was threatening to kill myself, big brouhaha, big, horrible, I had to go see a counselor, like a real counselor. My fifth grade teacher pulled me into class. And I just I don't want you to feel that you know, I love you. I care about you. all this shit, all this shit. Once someone says I'm going to kill myself, whether they say it, I'm going to kill myself, or what do you want me to do? Kill once the words kill myself come into a conversation. Then people see, oh, I got to be nice to this person because nobody wants to be named in a suicide note. You know, people want to be assholes until they see the possibility of being blamed, of being called out in a way that they can't deny. And the other thing that the, that I think about when you were sharing about how that girl was making fun of you and sending you these horrible notes mm-hmm. is, you know, I get the feeling that she hated the weakness and the vulnerability that she saw in you. And the more you apologized, the more it probably angered her. The more she preyed on it. The more she preyed on it. The more it made her feel powerful. Like, this this girl wants to be my friend. This girl wants something from me, wants my approval, and I'm not going to give it to her. Fucking evil. Evil little 11 years old to be that evil. And she wasn't even the worst of them. Is it fair, though, to use the word evil? Because I think... (laughs) 
<laughs> because I think of a you know I think of an eleven year old kid who's doing that, and that kid clearly is not being fed emotionally at home. A kid who gets fed emotionally at home does not do that kind of mm. stuff. A kid who's being fed emotionally at home has some empathy and isn't. I, that that's the way I see the world, and maybe that's uh, a little too new agey. But um, and that's not to say that that what she's doing isn't awful and reprehensible. But I think it's too simplistic to just write people off as evil and say that that person. That kid should have known better because I think in many ways kids are just kind of like pinballs that just bounce around in the environment they're created in. Okay, yeah, okay, so maybe evil is not the right word. Um, I do not think she was raised to know, I don't know that she was raised to know that that was wrong because I don't think that the parents, if the parents knew that their kids were behaving that horribly, honestly... These specific incidents, like those kids, I really don't know that their parents would have done anything. I don't think that their parents would have been the type to be like, this is wrong. You don't treat people that way. Oh, no, no. Their parents probably parents, were just as bad. Yeah, they're probably the type but, of parents that my kids can do no wrong. And exactly. Keeping and up with the, the Joneses. And, but, uh-huh, you know, but, but you, to feed them emotionally, I mean, or to not feed them emotionally, I mean, if it is... is raising them up as like golden this is the golden child my child is so good i love you know to to laud these kids with like praise and gifts and you get whatever you want you have your own phone line you have you know your own this you have everything is pink and puffy in your bedroom and perfect like is that emotionally feeding them? no not no. at all that's the opposite but to it's me. making them feel very very valued but in a in a really shallow way yes i'm talking about seeing i'm talking about giving them boundaries giving Mm -hmm. them consequences yeah um that wasn't what that neighborhood was about yeah no that is part of being emotionally fed protecting them but also guiding them Mm -hmm. giving them let them taste independence but not get crazy with it um raise them to be productive members of society yeah and, yeah and, and and have empathy um Oh, no, these kids had no empathy, no empathy, no compassion. And that extended through junior high, through high school. And it was about, it was about probably my freshman year when I kind of hit my limit of trying with them and saw the benefit then in going the other way and rebelling against them and in being as like hardcore punk and as in their face as possible. Because at least, I mean, if they weren't going to be my friends, at least I could have some fun with it. And, and fail on your own terms instead yeah, of trying to... Yeah, I wasn't even failing at that yeah. point because then I was identifying with an entirely different group of people. Then, like... Oh, so the, you weren't the, still solo at that point? No. Once I, once I turned into don't give a fuck girl, then, like... Uh, then I was friends with all the the right people. Then I was friends with all the the smokers and the people that hung oh, out okay. and 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 the people that did their subversive teenage things. You know, the Christian Slater with the underground radio station. Then I was friends with those people, and that actually did I think lead to the better parts of what I took away from all of that. I mean, I took a healthy dose of cynicism and and uh, uh, you know uh, being pretty convinced of of. You know, the horrors in people's souls, the terrible things people do to each other just in order to make themselves feel better. But I also, you know, I also think I, that's where I initially learned about about banding together with the people that can relate to you. 
And I think that my therapist says, you know, you're just looking for your people. That's what life is. You're looking for your people. You're looking for your people. And that's what comedy for me has been because I, I haven't been, I haven't been a clean comic ever because I haven't lived a clean life ever. And I felt like comedy is not just a job that one can technically do. I feel as though it's an art form that one has to have in their soul. You know, one has to have the ability to take, they have to have something inside that they need to turn into something. I agree. You know, for Peeping Comics, when I was interviewing Paul Provenza, he talked about comedy being like physics. You take one thing, turn it into another, and I think it's more like alchemy. I, I use that word all the time. Yeah. I do. It's, yeah. it is all about alchemy. And yeah. I think we can go through life with our pain and our setbacks and the things we don't like about ourselves. And we can say, this is an anchor, or we can say, I can turn this into something that's going to actually help keep me afloat. And that mm-hmm. sounds crazy. And that sounds, it's a wonderful lifey, but it's, it's not, it just yeah. takes work and it takes faith and, faith in humanity sometimes when there isn't any yeah but it's one of the best leaps of faith i've ever done and that you know that's why i'm grateful that i that i couldn't stop drinking because i had to ask for help and say i can't do this and that was the beginning of me turning around in the right direction Mm -hmm. and finding the three-legged dogs instead of constantly trying to be a four-legged dog trying to grow that fourth leg that's yeah. just like, yeah yeah you know i think that my experience was the same you know and then you have this ex there's this extra benefit in finding your people through them relating to what you're saying like through creating this connection and making someone feel like like they're not alone you know like this this horrible feeling that they've had inside for so long because of this horrible thing and this person on stage is talking about the same thing and they just made me laugh at it it's very healing i think or you go out to coffee with somebody and they say here's some thoughts i can't get out of my mind here's how i feel about myself here's what this person did to me you know that i'm confused about and when I began to have enough positivity in me, true positivity, not wearing a mask positivity, mm-hmm. but true positivity because I began to feel more hopeful about my life and I'm able to sit and have coffee with somebody and hold their hand and say, here was my experience and mm-hmm. I can see a little light come on in their eye. That is like when the alchemy that's like when the smoke comes up, like where you know the two new materials have mm-hmm. bonded and something new has been created. Mm. And I wish so much for people out there who are in pain, who are feeling hopeless or confused, for them to keep reaching out for help because it is, it's in many ways it's a miracle because we, we get to have these experiences that we have never had before in our lives. Mm-hmm. And so they... It's like winning the lottery, you know? Yeah. It's like you don't believe it exists. But when you do feel it that first time and you feel, you look around and you're in a room full of three-legged dogs and you realize, oh, this wasn't a curse. It just took me a while to find my tribe. Ugly duckling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's so... I think it's better than being a four-legged dog because 
you've you got your present held back for a couple of decades and you appreciate it yes more. i agree completely yeah i felt when i started doing burlesque um i felt that i felt like the ugly duckling like i couldn't fit in in mainstream i mean here's the thing i did fine in clubs in comedy clubs and one-nighters i did fine i did fine sometimes i did great uh but for some reason oh club owners and managers sometimes just didn't really like me there's something just about me i'm up there i'm a dirty comic i'm female and i look like i look tattoos you know at the time i had a nose ring i dressed all sorts of like i wasn't i wasn't trying to make it easier to hear i was just trying to be myself and i think that they were a lot more i think first of all to be a, a female comic to be dirty you're already gonna be fighting an uphill battle but it makes it a lot easier if you're pretty and you look like the girls and the girl next door makes people pal you know take a lot more from you so i think that i was just difficult to <clears throat> i don't know just difficult to to uh, fi- not figure out, but just difficult to get comfortable with. But once I found burlesque, like it was just a bunch of weirdos like me, and the the audiences loved what I had to say, whatever I wanted to say, whatever I wanted to do, they loved it. They just wanted entertainment for entertainment's because sake. Burlesque, you can also talk as opposed to stripping, mm-hmm. where you're not talking. Um, yeah, I did spoken mm-hmm. word striptease like Gypsy Rosalie. Because I just, I cannot, I can't stop talking. That must have been incredibly empowering. It was. Talk about the first time you, you, you got. The first time I stripped for burlesque? Well, the first time you felt like these are my people. You had a performance where you're like, everything feels right. I feel. The first one. Talk about it. The first, I took a burlesque class shortly after my divorce and. We had our recital at this this local uh, performer slash playwright slash just this very avant-garde art scene uh, loft. Uh, and it was just filled with all these avant-garde artsy people that I didn't, I didn't even know existed in Kansas City. And they were like my age group and, and I, I had no idea they, they were, they were there. I had no idea who they were. And I remember just thinking, I'm not cool enough for these people. Like, these are the cool people who know about all the bands that no one else knows about, and they know about the artists, and they know artists' names, and they read books that they remember, and, you know, and they don't, they don't, I'm a, I'm a fucking road comic. A divorced road comic. How old were you? I was, uh, let me think, it was, uh, 2006. 31. Okay. 31. Yeah, 31. And, uh, it was my first solo. Like we did our group number. It was fine. But being, you know, a group number is different than being up there alone, taking off your clothes. And so my soul, I was so nervous, so nervous and until, and it's almost like comedy. I was really, really nervous and took, until I took the first article of clothing off and the crowd went wild wild and because it was held in a loft it wasn't in like a proper theater the lighting was such to where i could see everyone there and just to look out and see their faces and see they weren't judging me and they weren't snickering about my fat gut they weren't they weren't they just loved what i was doing they loved the personality they loved just the act of what i was doing they saw you they saw me yeah and they didn't hate it and i think your standards are so high 
<laughs> oh yeah they didn't chase me with torches yeah. <laughs> and i cried like a baby yeah yeah pretty much uh yeah i cried i couldn't finish the strip tease and then things got weird no it was it was it was great it was wonderful and it was it was such a such a different feeling than i'd ever had except for maybe Just, the first time i'd ever gotten a laugh you know because there's something about that moment too the first time you ever get a laugh like on stage you know, that's like a, whoa, God, I just did that. I just made it's that a, come out of those people. It's a, it, it is. Yeah. It's cocaine. Mm-hmm. But it's cocaine that you manufactured, that yeah. you. Oh, you, yeah. You yeah. grew the coca leaves in your notebook. Mm-hmm. You know, you rearranged the sentence, which is like you I'm found the, producer, the right chemicals. The distributor. You knew how to package user. it. You put your little stamp on it. Yep. This is my shit. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the the happiest I've I've ever been has been on stage. I'm positive of it. More as a comic, more in comic. burlesque. Yeah, comic is more satisfying to you than burlesque. It is now. It is now, and I think that the sex work had a lot to do with that. Um, I don't find much joy in burlesque anymore uh, for 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 several reasons. But I think that the stripping took a bit of the allure out of it because I think that I was so. Uh, I had such body issues, such shame, such shame. And uh, the burlesque helped me with that because it helped me go, there is external validation that I'm not a hideous beast. There's external validation that there's somehow something about me that is attractive and or sexy. And, and that was, despite... You know, despite my size, despite this, despite whatever, just, you know, just whatever flaw, you know, was at the forefront that day. Uh, And now I know, like, I know sexy is sexy. Everyone has something and everyone thinks something different is sexy. Sexy is such a such a such an illusion and such an elusive thing to try and gain because you already have it. And it's so personal. Yeah. Yeah. It's so personal. It's so subjective. But now, you know, now I don't need to, I don't feel like I get much validation from the positive response in getting naked because I get, I get money for it. You know, I'm aware that the dudes want to see me naked. I got it. Great. It's kind of like, a. would it be fair to say it's, you know, those jokes that you have in your act that have been there for a long time that you don't necessarily, you don't get that jolt like you do when you write a new joke and it gets a laugh is that what stripping is like Uh, it's like uh, i'm not getting the high from that that i did initially kind of like this is just a sort of the mystery of of why i get the why it gets that response why that happens has worn off you know and all you're left with is the money yeah right yeah the money and the money and then just that that sort of like moderately sick satisfaction from from basically being a tease for money you know because you don't touch them theoretically theoretically what does that mean that means that the lines do blur sometimes and they have in the past and and to think that they don't is just being naive you know to think that the girls you work with are just no, we're all just going in there and just doing a little dance, getting naked, doing a dance across the room from the guy. I mean, that's that's just naive, you know. Like, so it, there's no, there's not like a separation, like a no. glass partition or something. In the peep show, there's glass. 
uh, at the Jack Shacks, there's no glass. That's why they pay so much. They pay so much to be in the room, you know, because there's there's that unknown of like something could happen. I see. So the more money I put down, the more likely it is that something happens. Because if a guy comes down and puts down the minimum tip, he knows he should know. You're not going to get anything. You're barely going to get naked. I'm going to fulfill the the basic. I'm going to fill the the basic, uh, you know, the basics of the job. But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go out of my way to make sure you really enjoy the show. But if you drop like you know multiple hundreds of dollars, I'm gonna make sure you have a good time. I want you to come back. I want you to be my regular. I want you to keep bringing me all that money. Um. And you know you separate it. You try to separate it, and you. This is just part of my job. This is. This is that. This isn't what I take home with me. This isn't. Uh, you know, I wash my hands before I leave. So, literally or both yeah literally figuratively you know metaphorically whatever um but it definitely takes some of the it takes the joy and the thrill out of like getting naked because i think that a lot of a lot of uh girls in burlesque that strip wouldn't strip at a strip club i mean some do some have of course uh some just love stripping and I'm not saying I hate it. I don't hate it at all. I love it when it's done well. I love doing it well. I love doing it interestingly, but I think that there's also a lot of girls in burlesque that they ju- they just want the validation like like I had at first. You know, like my my what I got out of it at first is what they're in in it for. There's nothing wrong with that. They're doing it in a very healthy artistic way. As healthy as you know, basing some of your self-worth on you know how how sexy you you are to other people as healthy be. as anything can be with uh bon jovi playing in the background <laughs> yeah yeah i'm trying to find mm-hmm. the avenue into your soul and i don't know which subject to talk about because i still feel like you got some walls up and I don't know if it's because being a sex worker. Because I don't like crying in front of people I don't being, know. And I'm I'm a crier. Like I'm a hair trigger crier. So I, I would not have guessed that because I feel like, oh, this woman never cries. And I'm not trying to get you. All to, the time. I'm not trying to get you to cry. But I feel like there's a shell around you that I want to crack. Because I can sense the pain and the anger mm-hmm. inside you and i relate to it <laughs> very much and it's like i just want to give you a hug uh, my dad didn't tell me he was proud of me until a few years ago and i know he's full of shit you and don't believe he's proud of you n- no i think that he's in therapy and i think that he's uh I think he's a better person than he was when I was growing up, but proud of me. I think that that's just something that he feels like he needs to say to absolve himself, you know, in the same vein as, um, shit, (laughs) in the same vein as, as the kids, like when, when the stakes are suicide, then, then you get real nice. You know, then it's like, oh, I don't, I don't want to be the reason. I think that that's why he's proud of me. And I use air quotes around proud because 
as far as accomplishments, like real accomplishments you could be proud of, I don't have many. I don't have really anything that's like worked out the way I've wanted it to. Nothing that's like gone the distance. So I don't really know that there's a lot to be proud of. It's because I'm a bad crier. That's why I don't like crying in front of people. Uh, So, you know, when you wait like 30 some odd years to hear your dad say that he's proud of you and you have those 30 some odd years of bullshit to look back on, it's almost more insulting to hear. Yeah. It's almost more insulting to hear. Does it make you angry? Or sad? It makes me angry. Like, he makes me very angry. You know, I love my mom. I mean, I love my dad, too. Love them both. But uh, their their split was not uh, clean or pleasant. Uh, My dad had been uh, cheating on my mom for a few years since she got diagnosed with lupus. Uh, yeah, when, when her health started, like when she first got diagnosed, things were up and down and they were trying different meds. And so she, it was just a real difficult time. So that's when he decided to go get a girlfriend. Uh, cause that's what, that's what you do when your family's in crisis. You fucking step out. And how old were you when that happened? Um, well, I was 17 when he, uh, when he started dating the woman started to see, I don't know. Can you call it dating? Is it when you start uh, covertly sneaking around with, with some woman. Uh, I was 17, but we didn't find out till I was 21. Oh no, I'm sorry. I was 20. Cause I was about to move to Chicago. He had been working at a radio station in Omaha for a little while. So he'd go up during the week and come back on the weekends. And, um, I wasn't even living at home for, for part of that time. And then before I moved to Chicago, I moved back home for a couple months, but it was just really just my mom and me. My sister was in college and she was living uh, in the town where the college was. And uh, I remember when she, my mom told me, I remember every time like something happened with this, I never, I would never even consider taking my dad's side because I was closer to my mom. My dad had been very distant, very, he was a very unhappy person. He was a, he started as a DJ creative career, you know, personality. And that's my dad, personality plus personality, great voice, just, just, you know, but also very stubborn and very my way. I want things my way. I'm the same way. And one of the, one of my fears and the thing is, is I don't want to, I, I, I'm afraid that I am my dad because you know, that the, the, my way, my way robbed him of his creative career, you know, he butted heads with so many people that he mm. couldn't get another on-air job. And so then he had to go into sales and then he had to go into the, you know, and it kills a soul. And then he became just a super, super unhappy person. Uh, and so I, most of my adolescence was spent trying to avoid my family. Just, I was the one that was, was non-confrontational. My sister uh, was in and out of mental hospitals for a little while when she was 15. I was 12 because she tried to kill herself. And that was about when 
all the attention had to go to her. So from 12 on was where I started self-care, self-parenting somewhat. Not in a healthy way, of course. I was going to say, no, at 12, no, no, yeah. no, no. <laughs> an awesome thing to do as an adult, yeah. but as a yeah. child, yeah. Yeah, I gave myself a bedtime. I gave myself boundaries <laughs> and rules. The exact opposite happened. I ran wild in the streets like a dog. Uh, thankfully, though, I, I, I was always smart, and I was always, I was always street smart. I don't know how I got that way, but thankfully, you know, I think that that helped prevent something really bad from happening um but so my parents were not happy my very codependent relationship um and i learned a lot from watching my mom take care of everything and really martyr herself and i'm very scared of becoming my mom because she's never gotten over the divorce her and my dad she's not cool with my dad not cool with him uh and I don't want to be that. I mean, I don't want to end up bitter because I'm bitter and alone and like martyred and taking care of people so that they like owe you. So they owe you the emotions. So they owe mm. you the loyalty. Um, and I and I say that I feel shitty saying that because I love her. Like my mother is just everything to me. Everything. Uh, when. Uh, well, is it, is it fair to say you feel like she's stuck? Not necessarily in her life circumstances, but emotionally. Yes. Yes, very much that's just, that's, on that subject. Yeah, you know, and I mean, she's and she's stuck in her ways. She is who she is. Does she? Does she still feel like she's a victim of your father? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, that, that, man. That is such a tough thing. But she is a victim of him. She is, but at a certain point we have to take responsibility for our lives. I think there's certainly yeah. a period of mourning and giving weight to what happened to us mm -hmm. and having compassion for ourselves and feeling the anger at the person who hurt us. Mm -hmm. But at a certain point, we have to say, okay, now what? Right. And she's... She... I mean, it's not like her whole life is spent, like, stabbing her wedding photos, you know? That's only like probably 30 minutes of each. Time. <laughs> uh, I mean, she has like a, she has a full life. She has a life full of stuff, but there's still that, there's still that, that big ball of like, just, just darkness, this big ball of yeah. angry, angry, uh, if victim. And you know, my, my thought on that too, is that a, a lot of times it's not even about that person. Sometimes I think it goes back to something in childhood and that, that person that we're angry at just reminds us of something else that we were too young to put a, a name to or to, to describe. Um, yeah. That's just kind of my, my personal hunch. Just the longer I'm alive, the more I realize the things we're angry about aren't really the things we're angry about. You know, there's this, yeah. there's this saying that everything is about sex except sex. <laughs> and I don't think everything is is goes back to you know was i sexually abused or right. what but i think it goes back to not being emotionally fed as a child sexual abuse is sometimes yeah. part part of that or being ignored or you know whatever as as a kid but because as children we didn't know what our genetic need was to mm -hmm. be met emotionally mm -hmm. we can't put it into words we just know something is missing yes so then when we do get something that happens to us as an adult that we can put a name to we think that's what it's about 
Mm. But in reality, I think a lot of times it's this wound that's deeper and more primal underneath it. Um, that's that's my personal. And that's why I think therapy and support groups are so awesome because you get to the root of, of oh, those yeah. things. Give me some snapshots from uh, childhood that kind of you think help define who you who you are childhood or adolescence or even young adulthood um things were that that were painful embarrassing transformative um uh, you know life affirming confusing things there's you find, a girl that lived across the street elizabeth Patton. we're not going to talk about her give me another <laughs> Well, that's actually just a really small thing. That's like, we were in class together, but again, no one would be friends with me, but she would be friends with me in secret. Like, we could be friends at home. We could play at home, not at school. Uh, so that, I think, set me up for that whole, like, I have to be someone's secret friend. And that's extended to now I have to be someone's secret girlfriend. Um, that extends to me being okay with with being someone's secret, which is a terrible terrible oh so you get into relationships with guys that have that have that that are married or no 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 they just they just don't want to be they don't want it known that we're in a relationship why i don't know i don't know that's Um, baffling to me yeah me too but i i will accept it because you know there's someone that loves me. That's why I got, I married a guy that I knew for three months because he would marry me. No one else had even wanted to be my boyfriend and this guy will marry me. All right. Well, I guess that's what you do. You find someone that's willing to marry you, marry him before he gets away. It had nothing to do with how you felt about him. It was how he felt about you. Yeah. Yeah. My love for him was based on the fact that he loved me when no one did. No one else did. I see that so much. Yeah. I see that so much. That was a terrible, terrible marriage. That that was the first thing that really, like, that was the first time I really let my comedy career slide. I was doing fine. I was on the road before that. I was doing fine. I was making most of my money on the road. It was great. I was really enjoying it. And then uh, I got married, and and uh, he was, uh, he was an addict, various, you know, a drinker, and there was various drugs, and uh, didn't like to didn't like to keep a job. He did like drugs. He did like drinking. He did mm-hmm. not like to keep a job. Um, so That's a pretty sweet combination. Those all wind up working for each other. I can tell you're a little jealous. <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't be, you know? And he was he was an angry guy, too. So I'd come home, and he'd be sitting on the floor playing video games with the <laughs> bong out. And I mean, I'm a pot smoker myself. Like, great. Do some bong hits, fine. But can you find a fucking job? Yeah. Like, do that, and then maybe we'll just get super high to celebrate, you know? But he'd be like, look, look, I circled this job. So he'd have the paper out, because yeah. this was... So manipulative. Yeah, and there would be, like, a job circled. And I'd be like, well, did you call in it? I'm going to do that tomorrow. That's yeah. what I'm going to do tomorrow. He probably believed all that stuff himself, too, you know? Maybe. Maybe. I've never felt truly valued. I've always felt like I really got to prove myself to earn any value. And I don't feel like I've ever really proved myself. You know, was there another no. thought to that? Because I, what I wanted to say is, first of all, I relate very deeply to that. And I think most of the people listening to the podcast do. And I think it's one of the biggest myths in 
living our lives and trying to find that sense of peace and comfort and security is that we think we need to be more to get to that place. We mm-hmm. need to be exceptional at something. We need to impress people. And I lived that lie for a number of, of years, and I found that the actual secret for me and a lot of other people is just the exact opposite, is to say to somebody, hey, here's what I struggle with. Here is what I don't like about myself and I can't stop thinking about. You know, I can't stop feeling like I'm worthless or that my future is fucked Mm -hmm. or I'm so tired of of not wanting to get out of bed and face the world. Um, That's where it started for me, was doing just the opposite, turning 180 degrees around because whatever, whenever I was able to impress somebody... Mm -hmm. It was so that high was so fleeting and it was just that it was a high it was not a it was not like I was being fed meat and potatoes it was like I was eating a candy bar that gave me an incredible rush yeah. for 10 minutes yeah and I just wanted I just wanted to to mention that because that's been a really super important thing in my life is to catch myself when I'm finding myself desperately wanting to impress somebody and then I have to go deep inside and say what is it I'm afraid that I'm not going to get or I'm afraid I'm going to lose and it's usually one of those two things and so Mm -hmm. I try to ask myself what what are you afraid that you're going to lose or you're not going to get in your life um I'm afraid I'm going to lose what little I have. Um, you know, I'm afraid that... I'm afraid... Yeah, I'm afraid I'm going to lose what little I have and what little independence I have. Um, and... What am I... What was the second question? What am I hoping to gain? What are you afraid you're not going to get? What or am you're I afraid going to lose? I'm, not going to get is um, that's hard to answer that what am I afraid I'm not going to get what am I afraid I'm not going to achieve I'm not going to ever be able to uh, take care of myself fully I'm never going to make it as an adult I'm going to end up uh, like retiring under a bridge Um, I'm going to alone of course I'm going to, fuck, I went back to the peep show recently for a couple shifts, and there's a girl there that was new since the last time I was there, which, I mean, most of them were, because it had been a while. Uh, she turned 49. Like, a, she was turning 49 a couple days after I saw her. I'm real afraid that that's, that I'm going to end up that way. You know, I'm going to afraid, I'm afraid that, and she came out here for acting and for singing and for voiceovers, and... She was very quick to tell me, like, that she'd done some stuff. You know, she had done some stuff. She was in a in this one movie with this one actor, you know, that, that I'd heard of. She was in there, and she and she did a voiceover one time for something that maybe, maybe I'd heard also, you know, which I don't know if I had, but uh, I'm really afraid that I'm going to end up that. I'm going to be a 50-year-old stripper telling people about, like, what I once almost did. Like, one time, I... I um, one time I almost, uh, I almost, uh, I, I don't know. Like one time 
I'm not sure. I was on the mental pod and Paul oh, talked over me. No. One time I was on the mental pod and I couldn't think of anything good to say. And I, I liked it. I couldn't even correctly get the name of my own fucking podcast. <laughs> was, yeah. How pathetic is that? I was um, on the mental illness happy hour. How's that? It's better. Yeah. Uh, I'm afraid that I'm going to... I'm just... I'm afraid of fucking everything. I'm afraid of everything and yet I'm getting to a point where I'm almost more numb to the fear. And it's hard for me, it's really hard for me to to own up to, like, still having all these, the inagu- like inadequacy and, and the darkness, because I just finished my, I just finished my RIT 200, my Register Yoga Teacher 200, I just finished that course, and, you know, I've never felt... I've never felt more open to the light than I was during the course. I don't feel like I have all that light anymore. I feel like without that constant influence, without that group of people that I was with for 12 weeks, without that support, you know, it, yeah, I've fallen off that wagon exactly the way I, I didn't want to. And I saw it as a way out of stripping, you know, being certified, a certified yoga teacher. And that hasn't, that has not happened. And it was very discouraging. It was very discouraging to learn like in the class that most studios won't hire a teacher for a year, you know, and to me, a year is like a fucking eternity. To so many other people in the class who they have careers, like they have career, a lot of people in the class weren't even taking it to be a teacher. They were taking it just as an intensive way to in, 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 to deepen their practice. And it was, I don't know, it was kind of weird to be in a group of people who I was so like different than in such a different life situation, financially, economically, and still so. so accepted I don't think um, I don't think I've ever felt safer like anywhere uh, than I did during those 12 weeks like when we were at the studio I don't think I've ever had a safer place and now I realize that that safe place that I have where like, where, you know, the place you are where no one can get to you, now that that's over, that's the jack shack. Now, if I'm at work, no one can expect anything from me because I'm at work. If I was in class, no one could expect anything. My phone had to be off. It's not good. But you know, as you as I sit here and listen to you describe that, just over the last ten minutes, as you've shared, the first thing that occurs to me is you are a successful adult. You're intelligent. You're articulate. You're in touch with your feelings. You know the things that you want from life, and while you aren't satisfied 
with where you're at in your life, you have you have goals. You can get into action to take those actions. The fact that you took a 12-week intensive yoga course to become a teacher, that's pretty fucking badass. Yeah. That you can talk openly about your life and the things you've been through, that's a really important part of being a successful adult. To be able to be vulnerable, to me, there's no greater achievement as an adult than the ability to be vulnerable and connect to other people. Yeah, there are these other parts of your life that aren't ideal to you that you want to change, but that's the that's the first thing that yeah, that I mean, I, I, I wanted to address. The, the, well, I don't want to. I I, I want to clarify something. Okay. I I I don't say all this stuff. I'm not telling you all this stuff because I think I'm a victim here. I understand that my problems are my own making. And what I, or what I consider to be my problems are my own making. And I, I'm just saying this because I I hate... I don't think you're coming across as a victim at all. I think you're just coming across really self-pity. hard. Self-pity. I don't want to... No, I think you're coming across as unusually hard on yourself and... and oh, that's my thing. Not, <laughs> of that's, course. That is, uh, that is in my bones. And my the dad second- was never... My dad was very like... I think that's maybe why it also... His like, I'm proud of you just rings as bullshit because... I was, I mean, I have like, don't half-ass it. Don't half-ass it. You do, You never have follow-through. Like, I mean, shit, I know. Does he know uh, about the stripping or the sex work? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I don't think he knows the extent, only because um, I don't really talk to him about it. We've just never, we've just never had like a... Uh, a lot of people have that that daddy daughter like I can talk to my daddy about everything and I hug him and I and and I'm so creeped out by adult women that call their father daddy. Yeah. Oh yeah. But you know, I I mean unless I'm jacking off to it. <laughs> and then you don't want to know that there it's an actual yeah. Uh the other thing that that occurred to me as you were sharing this is that what you deem as a failure in your life at at this juncture in your life is just an opportunity for you to find another support network or st- structure in your life because it you found what you love being among people who see you you found that when you were originally started doing the burlesque dancing you mm-hmm. found it when you started doing the yoga thing so you I know found it during comedy too yeah i mean like but but with who mattered the audience is what mattered to me right and always always has always will so it's just a matter of you finding that re- repetitive structure i think in your life where you can be fed by that work can be fulfilling and everything me doing this podcast is extremely fulfilling to me, mm-hmm. but I would wither if this was the only place that I got fed. I need mm-hmm. that network. And I guess that's what I'm encouraging you and other people to do is to find that network that has no monetary thing attached to it, that mm. isn't achievement oriented, that is just about you being you with no strings attached. Because then the love that you get there is as purely unconditional as it can get. I imagine that's what you felt in the yoga thing because they had no reason, no monetary investment in loving you and accepting you. 
they did it because they you you knew that they weren't lying to you that it wasn't a happy bullshit ending like it's a it's a wonderful life it wasn't yeah. your dad saying he's proud of you they had nothing to gain by embracing you so yeah. it must have been real yeah i think it was just it was this just the safety like for some reason it just like being in the room now at first it was very hard it that was not a it wasn't an immediate comfort thing at first It was hard for me to be in that room because there's so much emotion in the room. You know, there's people crying all the time. And I'm not saying that in bad. That sounded a little like smug, like, oh, people are crying all the time. No, I didn't come across that people. No, but it was was difficult to be in a room with that much emotion and not absorb it. And it was was really heavy. But then the more it went on, the more, like, things sort of, like calmed down and everyone got into kind of into the groove of it and started really learning then it was great then it was just a very like breathable space i it was the first first place i can remember for so very very long just being able to just lay on my mat and breathe and not not have like periphery on not just just be able to like just be why do why would people cry in there because emotions were being let out by their body relaxing or yeah a lot of that um there's a there's like things in yoga there's positions in yoga and there's like the breath work and stuff like that as well as the philosophy and as well as like the intentions that bring up a lot of emotion and a lot of um for for whatever reason I, we learned about it i just can't think about it right now i can't think of like the technical things right now but there are certain positions that trigger certain emotions and that work with certain parts of your body and or certain chakras or, or all oh, that I kind see. of stuff that a lot of people don't believe in which is fine um that just kind of yeah release emotions and it's i probably wouldn't have believed that really if it hadn't you know, if if I wasn't present, if I if it hadn't happened to me, you know, mm. if I didn't really feel it, I would have been like, well, you know, nobody breaks down in Zumba, so <laughs> I don't know, I don't know. Um, I think that the dad proud thing, the that rings is such bullshit because of the way I see my life, because. And maybe because he doesn't really know 100% of the truth of what's going on. So to have someone say, like, I'm really proud of, of what you're doing. I'm really proud. You know, what are you proud of? Are you proud of the hand job I gave last week so I could keep my electricity on? Are you proud of that? I'm not proud of that. I mean, are you proud of what are you fucking proud of? Are you proud of me? Or are you just saying that because you want to absolve yourself? You want to be like... No, I've told I've told my kids I'm proud of them, so I'm a good dad. Like it's something he's checking off a list. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, well, I I know that dads are supposed to tell their kids they're proud of them. It's, it's going to be a real meaningful moment. You know, I'm proud of you. You're f- fucking too little too late. Good. You're proud of me? Fucking, you know, stick it in your pipe. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me anymore. It doesn't, like, you should have been proud of me back in in junior high you should have been proud of me when i was impressionable when i was developing when i needed a positive male role model you'd be proud of me then now what are you proud of me for becoming what you've made me well it's it it sounds like too like the difference between 
words and actions. Like yeah. maybe there would be a way to reconnect with you if he acted as if he was proud of you instead of just saying he was proud of you. You know, yeah. I think. Well, I mean, it's to a point now he does. Now he does. Uh, you know, he'll brag to his friends about things I'm doing. Uh, but I think that it feels disingenuous on my part to take that because I don't see, like, I see my, I see different parts of my life where he really could have been proud of me, where I was proud of me, where I, like, I can look back and go, no, I was really doing something good then. I was, that was, I was, I was making it like, that's when you should be proud of me. But right now, uh, things are a little murky. I see. Let's hold back on being proud. Be proud of me when you can't be proved otherwise. Be proud of me when I can go, yeah, you should be proud of me. Not, don't be proud of me and brag to your friends when they can, when they can, they can Google me and go, uh, your daughter did this. Your daughter did that. You know, and I know that, of course, they would never do that. No one would do that. But be proud of me when you can't be proven wrong. You know, proud of me now. That's confusing to me because it seems like it should be exactly the opposite, that now it's the most difficult, you know, quote unquote difficult for Mm -hmm. him to be proud of you in the eyes of, you know, society in general. So isn't that better that he's he's being proud of you when it's more well difficult for him saying that he's proud of me? I think that. No, I don't know. I don't think Mm so. No, I mean. Be proud of me when I can believe it. I think that's the thing. I see, because you're so not, not proud of yourself right now. It's like bad bad timing. Like, oh, now you now you say it where... Yeah, I think so. You know, yeah. Like, you know. it's it rings like lip service now. Okay, okay. You know. Well, I'm going to stop trying to be your dad's lawyer. And <laughs> <laughs> you know, really, uh, uh, for your own good, you should probably not... Yeah. I just, you know, when I see parents... Parents trying to make an effort um, on. But don't you think, though, the sincerity of the effort and the yeah, reason which for I making can't... the effort, like if you're making the effort to say, I'm proud of my daughter because you want her to know. Yes. Okay. But if you're saying, I'm proud of you because you want to know that you said it. To clear your conscience. Right. Yes. Exactly. I see. I don't like that. I don't like. I don't like the disingenuous. I don't like that at all. I never have. That's always been a very, um, yeah, a big thing. I don't like that. Hmm. I told you uh, before we started recording that I watched this documentary um, called American Courtesan mm-hmm. or Courtesans. I'm not sure what, but it's about um, sex workers. Um, and it's done by a woman who was a, a a sex worker and she interviews friends of hers in the field, escorts, um, uh, people in pornography. And it was really thoughtful, uh, heavy examination about the toll that it takes on them as well as the surprising moments that they've had that were positive Mm -hmm. 
And the thing that was probably the most disturbing was the lack of advocacy for them when they were being abused on the job. How they would go to the police and the police would say, well, if you're going to file this report, we're going to arrest you Uh for being an escort. Even though this guy who tried to fucking strangle you is still going to be out there. Talk about those three things. The part of it that crushes your soul, if it does. Mm -hmm. I would imagine you've had some moments that are soul crushing. Oh, yeah. The times. I had a story about that. The times that were, um, can I use the word positive? Sure. Um, There's definitely times like that. And the things that you see or you want to scream, because after watching this this documentary, I was like, my God, these are human beings, which I knew before I watched it. Yes, they're human beings. Mm Mm-hmm. But I had underestimated how completely marginalized their voices are and how little their options are when they're being abused. How... Yeah, your options are don't work there anymore. It's... They have no place to turn because most police don't view them as full people. No, and most... And most of society doesn't either. Yeah. Uh, It's surprising to me how many women hate strippers, hate sex workers, because they think that, that like, especially the strippers, oh, they want to take my husband. No, no, no stripper wants your husband. (laughs) No stripper, your stripper wants your husband's money. Stripper does not want your husband. And a lot of those women who judge the strippers married that guy for money. Mm -hmm. And they're just prostitutes on the long con yeah 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 exactly yeah exactly what's the di- I, what's the difference mm-hmm. you know uh, the ring and i've never understood why you know george carlin had this bit it's legal to sell things it's legal to fuck why is it not legal to sell fucking and what i don't understand is why is it okay to pay people to be in pornography mm-hmm but it's not okay for one person to pay another to fuck them. So really the difference is society isn't getting a videotape out of it. Sure. It's so we're going to arrest you. Movies versus Broadway, you know? Yeah. Uh, uh, but anyway, uh, if if you could answer sure. those three questions that... So the, um, well, the good, the good stuff. That's probably... So I, I think that sex work does provide a valuable service. And I think that I do provide a valuable service uh, in the in, in sex work. And I think that I always have like whatever type it's been, whether it's been the it's been phone sex, real sex, uh, the jack shack, stripping, whatever. It's an outlet. And a lot of times it's a good outlet for people with more unhealthy desires the there was a guy that i talked to all the time who had uh dentist rape fantasies like put you under the ether and then do stuff and i feel that it was much more healthy for him to talk to someone about it on the phone than to do it um was he a dentist i don't know i don't know i mean on the phone he was did you hear drilling in the background (laughs) drilling drilling No, I I don't know. I you know most of them I just took as like these are just dudes that want to fan or or the diapering fantasies or the baby fantasies or the uh, what else the the um, all the domination stuff. I had a guy 
that was one of my regulars who would call for, I talked to him in San Francisco, I knew because of the area code, and he just wanted me to tell him to do poppers and stick shit in his ass. Just, should I do another popper now? <laughs> should, I, should I do another popper? Yep, do a popper, and what's right next to you? Well, I have this, I have a dildo, and I have, I have... I have a TV remote. Stick the remote in your ass. Do a popper. Do it now. Do it now. And he loved it. And that was fine. That was fine. It was fun. It was him getting something that he needed from someone that wouldn't judge him. Yeah. You know, and I feel that way about a lot of the guys that come into the Jack Shack that have different fantasies. I had a guy come in and I told the story. I told you I told the story on Mick's show about the guy that wanted uh, anal penetration. And uh, I'd never done it. And the whole thing turned out... It, it it was a fiasco, but I did it, and he was very happy at the end, and on the way to walk him to, to his car, walk him to the back door to go to his car, this guy, this is the guy that was like, you know, you guys provide a very valuable service, uh, you know, it's very therapeutic, he's talking about, like, the sociological impact, all this shit, this is the guy that gets it, the guy that had just, like, not to be indelicate, but his ass had just exploded all over my room. And this is the guy that, that it was... Was that intentional? No, it was his first time, and nobody had told him how to prepare himself for anal play. And it was uh, also my first time, so I didn't know to ask. And uh, it was just a... Uh, it was just a case of the blind leading the blind in a situation where someone really needed to be able to see... You know, but but still, this guy left feeling, he said to me at the door, he goes, I guess I can knock that off my bucket list. <laughs> I fucking high-fived him. You know, I was like, high-five, buddy. Sent him out to his minivan where he sat and cried for 20 minutes. Because it was cathartic for him Probably. to have done that. Yeah. And a lot of it is. Like, a lot of people, they have these desires. They're too scared to share with the person that they've committed to with their wife or with their spouse, with their longtime, whoever, whatever. Or they're just scared. They're scared of other people, and this is somewhere they can go for their, for their intimacy or for their, to get that one thing out of their system, or to get it indulged. Can you think of an instance where you were deeply moved by that person's sharing that with you, where, where you felt? I mean. I, that guy I felt that way about that guy because and because of the crying because I walked my coworker out like 15 minutes later and I saw him still sitting there crying I felt I felt like I had uh <laughs> yeah I felt like I'd done something on the uh, like you, you know had, like you had touched someone's soul through their butthole yeah <laughs> That's, that's where a, you touch it. It's a long journey. <laughs> that's but where the it's soul worth lives. It. The soul lives in the prostate. Um, no, I felt there There are certain guys, I mean, they just, certain people. There was a couple, I did a couple show and I felt like I really helped them out because that was, um, I've done a, cu a few couple shows and most mostly they're, they're pretty horrible. They're pretty gross. Uh, Why is that? Um, they're never... The woman is never into it. It's never because the woman wants to be there. The woman is there because she wants to make her man happy. And the man is there because he wants two women. 
and he wants he wants this fantasy and the and the woman is there because she's so so desperate to hold on to this man that she'll do anything oh. even if she's not into it she doesn't want to she doesn't want to get naked with a stripper she doesn't want to watch a stripper get naked for her husband you know and uh but i had one that was this couple probably late 20s early 30s and they were really respectful and they were really um very nice and we had a really great conversation about uh like openness in relationships and and uh they were trying to they were trying to explore what an open marriage would be like trying to explore possibly a little bit of polyamory but they were it was really it was really neat to see and they left happy they left they didn't leave like arms crossed not close to each other they left holding hands uh and i felt like they got something out of it like they they got a question answered you know that mm. probably made them closer or maybe it made them break up <laughs> you never know what's going to happen the next day now i i think that they were probably they were good um and there's I mean, every time you have like somebody with something that's very unconventional, you always wonder, am I, am I helping this person or am I indirectly hurting them? And I'll bring up that shame addiction thing because some of the guys don't come in there because they want to feel good. They want to come in there. They come in there because they want to feel bad. They want to feel like they're doing something wrong. I don't, I don't necessarily know why i mean i think i do but you can never know why somebody is attached to to feeling bad how is it that you know that they're doing it for that reason the guys that come in a lot the mostly i saw that at the peep show you know there'd be guys that would just come in there a lot and you could see it was an addiction you know it wasn't they weren't necessarily enjoying themselves they were just going through the motions of this is what i do i see yeah uh, or you know you can just you can just see it in their eyes. You can see deep sadness or deep shame. You can see avoiding eye contact. You know, mm -hmm. just you can you can smell it on someone when they're just disgusted with themselves. And it's unfortunate. I think it's unfortunate that society is so judgmental on 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 sexuality. That people have to do that. That people have to take on these feelings that something that they want is wrong, bad. They can't tell someone they love because they'll leave. So we provide a good service in that regard. We don't judge to the guy's face. I mean, sure, after some of the more out there shows, I've definitely gone back in the dressing room and been like, girl, you will not believe what I just did. But... I would never be like, this guy is a sick freak. This guy has problems. This guy's dumb. I would never do that. I would just be like, oh my God, I just did this. Can you even believe that? Who likes that? But it's never a judgment call on the person, on their soul, on mm -hmm. who they are. Now, as far as the bad stuff happening, um... I've had a couple incidents. There's not a lot of safety. And in strip clubs, there's bouncers. And in Jack Shacks, the ones I've worked in, there have not, there's been security 
in quotations, meaning that the cashier is also the security guard. So, and they're not close to where the action's happening. Um, so there's been times when I've definitely not felt safe in a room with someone. Uh, there was one incident where I had to put my shoe in the guy's chest, like my heel to his, um, his, uh, little, uh, Sternum? uh clavicle? above the, the, the little great pole between the clavicles. Mm-hmm. I've had to have a heel there to keep a guy on the couch instead of just ending the show. Cause I didn't know that I could, I didn't want to get in trouble. Um, there's, I've, I've gotten ninja fingered a couple times. What's that? Uh, when you're backward, you're facing away from the guy, you know, giving him an ass shot or whatever. And then all of a sudden there's a finger in you. Um, I mean, you, you, if you feel it before he's like, you know, mm. palm deep or anything, you know, down, but, but still, um, there's been stuff like that. There's been stuff, uh, I did a lap dance for a guy that wanted to be choked and, the ease in which I did that and the passion that I put into it, (laughs) I choked the shit out of that old man. And I was a little frightened afterwards. I was a little frightened at, at that, at the ease and the, and that like the, the, you know, like he barely, he barely said the word choke before. (laughs) Like he, he could have been saying, I don't know. I don't know. He, but I, I was enjoy choking. choker necklaces. Yeah, yeah. Right. no <laughs> hands around the neck, <laughs> leaving handprints. Uh, there's there's been a couple of, of the more like um, more extreme S and M things that I I'm, you know, I'll do it, and that's the thing. That's the thing of sex work. You do it. You're being paid to do it. You do it. You don't do it because you want to do it. You do it because that's what they're paying you for. Yeah. And that's like I think that. That's a big thing with sex work between sex work. What I've taken away, uh, the bad parts of, of the influence it's had on me is that sometimes I don't necessarily differentiate between like my personal life and professional life. I don't differentiate my boundaries in that at work, like you're paying me, I kind of have to do it. I mean, I don't have to do it, but I have to do it, you know? Uh, I've agreed to it because I need that money because the industry, the live industry is dying because of webcams. So, so someone comes in and says, I'll pay you this for this. I'm going to do it most, most of the time. Um, and then in my personal life, I have that fear of like, well, if I don't do this, I'm going to lose this person. I'm not getting money from that person, you know, per like personal sexuality, you know, you should, you should never feel like you're doing something you don't want to do for any reason beyond I'm going to experiment because I love this person or because I have an affection for this person. I'm going to experiment indulging them in what they need. Uh, that's a nice, that's a nice reason to do something. Maybe you're not into, but if you have a, an actual objection to it, you should always be able to be like, I'm not doing that. Do you feel like when you reach the day where hopefully you're not having to say I need to make rent I'm going to do this thing that Mm -hmm. is really right on the line of Mm -hmm. my comfort that I prefer not to do but I I need to do you feel like when the day comes that hopefully you don't have to do that that it will be easier to feel better about who you are and your place in the world 
and in love, my personal and, life and love yourself more uh do you feel like that's related to struggles you have with with self-esteem or cynicism about the future cynicism about the future yes um but of course that's a self-answering question when i'm not when i don't have to do this shit to make rent of course i'm going to feel better about the future because that'll mean that that things have gotten better you know and but as far as like personally i don't know i don't know how long it's going to take to get it out of my system and i don't know if i'm ever going to have the opportunity to need to have you ever had an experience with a client where you physically enjoyed it maybe where you had an orgasm and you thought i would have i would have done that for free yep. or, yeah mhm absolutely a few times yeah there's been a few times uh not not with actual sex though but um like with a toy show or or just you know but the the high tipping customers i'll usually do a toy show just because it kills time and i don't really want to do a lot of the i don't want to do a lot of conversing i don't want to you know and i I don't really like to dance much so uh yeah i mean there's there's been times what was it about the experience that made it pleasurable for you um just the physical act the physical act and seeing like how much the uh, the customer is enjoying it that like when you see the customer enjoying it really really getting into it that um makes it a lot easier to do the show to do to do whatever you're going to do that makes it a lot easier uh if you're sitting there with some guy with just he's giving you nothing or he's scowling at you then it's like well fuck it i gotta be in here with this guy for 20 minutes and it's it's gonna suck go somewhere else in your head um with those guys i try to just face away from them as much as possible i try to i try to face away from them as much as possible i don't like looking at someone who's who who, it's got to be disturbing yeah stank face nobody likes that especially when you're (laughs) naked you know or or if it's if I've, I've I've done a couple shows with guys that were just had that real creepy vibe, just very serial killery vibe. And there's been a couple times when I've not felt exactly safe in the room. Um, so, I mean, I, uh, I, don't, I don't. Where do where do sex workers go when they encounter somebody that they feel like this person is a fucking danger to society, and I experienced something that is proof that this guy is a fucking predator? Where do you go? Yeah, what do oh, you? You go do back you... to the dressing room and you chat with your coworker about it for a minute, and then you get over it and you fix your makeup and you go on to the next customer. That has to be. How do you sleep that away at at night and not have it haunt you? I, I don't. I mean, it does haunt me. And so, where do you go? You don't go anywhere. You go home if you don't want to have that job anymore. You don't. You don't go tell anyone. You gonna alert the authorities? No, no, absolutely not. You you don't really go anywhere. You know. You don't want to make waves. It's the same thing. That's, you know, what you're talking about, about um, being exploited by the, even by the people that own the places, you know, 
it's an exploitive business by nature. Now, that being said, I've I've never felt very exploited. I've never felt exploited to the point where I was like, hey, 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 hold up now. I am a person. Um, and I don't know if that's just because of my personality, because I'm not like a I'm not a, a shrinking violet, even though I'm not confrontational. I don't know if it's just the way I look or or, or just like. I don't know. I know that these places are not my end goal, so I'm never fully like, I'm going to do whatever they say, because I always feel like, I mean, you know, I'll do to a point. I realized that, um, that the person I thought I was has changed and evolved, and I think that I, I was in a relationship over the past, about, about the past year, um, on and off that has been the most intimate one I've ever had. The sex has been the most intimate thing. And I, before that, I never really felt a difference. Never really even, I mean, sure. You hear people go, Oh no, it's different when I'm with a customer. It's different, blah, blah, blah. But I was just like, well, just sex is sex. You just, just do it. Just do it. Get it done. Come on. I didn't, I don't think I ever loved my husband. This person I think I loved and the sex was different and it, it, that's that's probably what created the most um conflict for me conflicted feelings because mm. once you once you know the difference it's hard then it's hard um and then it's then it's even it's hard to to know that you have that ability to turn it off you know the first time that i had sex for money i was helping this guy uh rack which is um theft from big box stores in the most like walk in load up a cart and walk out not at all covert not at all mm -hmm. like just walk in load it and go out i was helping this guy with that and he called me up one night we just made a run from kansas city to st louis um hitting all the big box stores that that had this mm -hmm. stuff that he worked in which is scrapbooking supplies <laughs> those sizzlix things that housewives buy on ebay like he would steal them and sell them on ebay and he would do sewing machines too and he would do like some other stuff um but all these items like you don't really expect like who steals that shit these smart smart criminals uh so he called he also sold pills and he called me up one night after we'd gotten back from this kansas city st louis and back thing and he's like oh, i just did a oxy deal and a, he did oxycon assault not did mm. he did klonopin and he was uh he was like now we met each other with the possibility of a romantic connection that didn't happen, but we, we both like smoking weed and hanging out. So we got, you know, so it was like, cool. We were friends. We smoked weed. And then he was like, one day I was bitching about money. He's like, you need to make money. And I was like, yeah, yeah. It was shortly after my divorce. And he's like, okay, do you want to help me out with work? And I didn't know what he did. I just knew he had money. He had drugs and he had a really nice house. And I was like, uh, what do you do? And he told me about racking and I was like, sure, no problem. Fucking big box stores. Not a problem. I mean, you go to a mom and pop shop, we're going to have a problem, but yeah. you know, you're going to go to Hobby Lobby. Really not a problem. <laughs> Let's steal everything they have and then burn the store down when we leave. You know, like I had no problem with that. So he calls me up and he goes, uh, would you, f I, he's like, I did this Oxycontin deal. Would you fuck me for $1,500? I got $1,500. Would you fuck me for 1500? And I was like, yep. 
Yes, I would. Yes, <laughs> of course. Like, you're, first of all, you're my friend. Uh, there's a chance that we'll get drunk and I'll fuck you anyway. So you're going to put some money on it? Yes, I will fuck you for 1500 And he goes, well, uh, well, I mean, I'd, oh, I just... Because uh, he didn't expect I would say yes. I yeah. guess he thought that my moral compass was different yeah. than it was. Um, and I was like... He goes, uh, I don't have 1500 in in cash, but I have I have 500 in cash. Would you fuck me for 500 And I was like, yes. Yes, I would. And I go, how many times do I have to do it? And I have to stay the whole night? And he goes, no, you, you decide that. And I go, okay, I'll let you fuck me one time. And he goes, no, no. I mean, I want more than one time for $500. And I go, okay, well, all right. Uh, how long do I have to stay? And he goes, no, you determine that too. And I go, okay, well, I, I don't, no, no ass. You don't get to, no, no, you determine that too. You tell me what I can do. You tell me what I can't. You determine all that. And then I pay you. And I was like, oh, just, okay. You know how many nights I've, I've bought some guy drinks to try and get him drunk enough to fuck me. How? And now I just have to go. And this guy, first of all, he'll give me Klonopin. So I'm going to be fucked up. I'm not going to have to do it sober. And I get to decide how many times he fucks me. I get to decide what he can do to me. And I'm going to get $500. It's like, an, uh, okay, all right. So I go over there. And I say, you have an hour and a half. And I've brought two condoms. So you get two times, hour and a half. And you can't kiss me anywhere above the neck. Like neck up, no kissing. Okay. So he gets done the first time pretty quickly. That's nice. And then uh, he starts to go the second time. And he goes, uh, oh, I got to go to the bathroom. I'm like, all right. Gets up and goes, comes back. And of course, you know, you can't pee with a condom on. Mm-hmm. So he's taking off the condom, the second condom. And uh, he's like, uh, and I go, well, do you, do you have another condom? And he's like, no. And I go, well, I only brought two. I guess you just, you just got fucked out of half a fuck, you know? Yeah. And I went home and I felt fine about it. Never regretted it. The only regret I have is learning that I can, tur- like I can mm-hmm. compartmentalize enough to turn it off to be like this is professional sex and this is personal sex. And until this m- most recent person uh, that I, I was, you know, personally involved with, um, I don't think I ever thought that was a bad thing. You know, and I think that's probably because I didn't. I didn't know the difference. I didn't really know what it felt like when you actually loved someone. I want to thank you for opening up. And uh, it wasn't difficult to to get you to talk about this stuff. And I didn't think it was going to be. But um, I appreciate the moments that we had where you cracked the shell open. And that I know you didn't want to, (laughs) but um, I appreciate it because. Thank you for having me. I hope that at least some of this is like usable. I hope you don't have to shelve the whole episode. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I hope I don't, I hope I didn't contradict myself too much or sound like an idiot or uh, like a self-pitying or whatever. It's refreshing to have somebody that beats themselves up as much as I do. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry, Paul. (laughs) I know how I feel. I'm sorry. (laughs) I hope you don't. All right. If people want to see any of your stuff, Mm -hmm. um, where can they find you or reach you? Um, 
<clears throat> my website is getluckydeluxe.com. My burlesque name was Lucky Deluxe. My website is still under that. Um, so it's getluckydeluxe.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at, at LadyLuckyDeluxe. Or you can go to peepingcomics.com to see my web series. Um, what else? I'm on Facebook. But I think I'm at like maximum friends. So maybe Facebook is, you know, Twitter. Find me okay. on Twitter. Okay. Instagram. Wow. I live in Sherman Oaks. <laughs> you know uh well thank find you. me at the jack shack if you, if you got a few hundred bucks <laughs> probably after hearing this i'm not the stripper you want to see so <laughs> you can find me in my apartment hiding and talking to my cats <laughs> not kidding there's three of them and that's what i love i love talking to my pets Oh my God. It's the fucking greatest. Oh yeah. I like making them talk back to me too oh, yeah. and do their little voices. Sure. Gigi is French and her voice yeah. is a lot of fun. I think oh. it sounds more German, but you can't tell her. She gets very upset. Susanna, thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. Many, many thanks to uh, Susanna. Um, before we read some surveys, I want to remind you there's a couple of different ways you can support the podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can go to our website, mentalpod.com. Um, and you can make a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, uh, recurring monthly donation for as little as five bucks a month. It, uh, helps keep this show running and it means the world to me. Um, and it's easy once you set it up, you don't have to worry about it until you decide you want to cancel or your credit card expires. Um, you can also shop at Amazon through our search portal. Uh, just make sure your ad blocker is turned off. It's on the right-hand side of our homepage, about halfway down, and Amazon gives us a couple of nickels when you buy something. It doesn't cost you anything. You can also support the show non-financially by going to iTunes, writing something nice about the show and giving us a good rating that boosts our ranking and brings more people to the show. And you can spread the word through social media. That's a huge help. Um, so I would appreciate it if you guys would do that and take the surveys, especially the happy moments and the awfulsome moments surveys. Those, man, when I'm having a, a tough week, uh, there is nothing like reading a good awfulsome moment or a good happy moment. And they help keep the podcast uh, from being just, you know, trauma after trauma, depression after depression. It it, it, it adds some nice balance to the uh, to the podcast in an honest way. So if you haven't shared any of those with us, please do. And the happy moments don't have to be anything big. In fact, I think the the smaller and more sublime, um, the the more beautiful. I want to. This is from a. These next three are all from a um, about being hospitalized. Uh, this first one was from the being hospitalized survey, and this was filled out by a, a woman who calls herself Raven Hair. And uh, she was hospitalized uh, in a psychiatric, she writes, I was hospitalized in a psychiatric inpatient's service, which specialized in eating disorders for several months to gain weight and a few years later in a general psychiatric hospital as I was a suicide risk. Describe your experience. The eating disorders inpatients was an eye opener. I not only realized how unwell I really was, but I was so not on my own in my experiences and it being the first time I'd left home, I was 18, I suddenly realized just how emotionally harmful it was to live with my family setup. I lived with my father and my younger sister and realized as well that I could never ever go back there. Sadly, I had yet to build the words or confidence 
to describe why things were wrong, just that they were wrong and I was sent home time and time again for weekends to get used to going back home. It was only when I heard about a halfway house that I found out I never did have to go back. This was the most important thing I learned, to say no more and to walk away. My father battled hard to get the nurses on his side to try to change my mind. Luckily, I'm as stubborn as my eating disorder. Halfway through the time at the halfway house, about six months into my stay, my father tried the same trick with the staff there. But the but uh, the first time ever, uh, for the first time ever, they were fully on my side and refused to speak to him without me being there. I have never forgotten how that felt. I felt so safe after hearing uh, that but the worry that he'd break them never went away. I learned to keep myself strong and to know right from wrong in myself and others, even if I couldn't always do the right thing for myself. I learned in my short stay in the General Psychiatric Hospital that many people with psychiatric disorders seem to be on drugs, weed mostly, or skunk, and that if you do not have a drug problem, there is little psychiatric support funded for you and that you need to go it alone. Uh, I was... I think this was a wise thing to have chosen to do at a young age. I think it is a very sad thing that so many professionals within the mental health sector scarily seem to assume all mental health problems relate to drug abuse. Thank you for sharing that. This next one um, is from the same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Trapped. And she was hospitalized because of near-death purge-type anorexia. She writes, It was more traumatizing than the eating disorder itself. I couldn't have pencils, anything with string. I was watched on video at night, uh, rounds and vital signs uh, every 15 minutes, couldn't flush the toilet, had my shoes checked after every meal, wasn't allowed to wear long sleeves or tank tops, no layers, couldn't sleep during the day, couldn't walk too fast, couldn't stand too long. If I didn't finish my food, even a crumb left, I wasn't allowed to shower, talk on the phone, or have guests visit me. If I didn't finish my food consistently, they would keep me from showering for three days. Showers were seven minutes exactly. If you were too long, they would barge in on you. No mirrors, no water, no bathroom breaks outside of given hours. No talking to other people about being there, eating disorder, food, or anything fun. Uh, was with people ages 10 to 75. Was with a kid that would pee on the furniture and another one who would pretend to faint seven times a day. And at one point was someone who would throw up on the dinner table. If you threw up, even on accident, you weren't allowed to use the restroom. You had to throw up on the floor and then clean it up yourself as punishment. Weighed butt naked every morning and would listen to make sure you peed right beforehand so that you wouldn't be water loading. Couldn't exchange numbers or emails with anybody. Stuck there for two months. If you didn't gain 5K per kilogram per day, even if you had eaten everything and this was totally out of your control, you couldn't shower, talk on the phone, or have guests. It was worse than prison. I don't miss it. I am better now from my own motivation and doing. And then I wanted to read this other one right after it because I think these are just such, so contrasting in, well, I'm just going to read it. Um... Her, she calls herself Callie Girl in NC, and uh, she writes, um, this was actually from an awfulsome moment survey, uh, but it's about a psychiatric stay. She writes, I was an inpatient at a psychiatric hospital for a week two summers ago. I met two friends there that I still keep in touch with. We all bonded over our severe depression and suicidal ideations. I have a pretty dark sense of humor, and they both did too. We ended 
uh, cracking so many jokes about depression, suicide, and having to take so many pills. It was really nice to not have to pretend I wasn't depressed and suicidal. It sort of gave everything a summer camp-like feel. Being in the hospital is very comforting. Your whole day is scheduled, and you have to make very few decisions. They tell you when to eat, sleep, take your pills, go to therapy, and smoke. It really helped me a lot, and having friends to go through it with, through it with, made the whole situation less awful. Uh, this is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Ham Fisted Ham Fister. Uh, And he writes, it might not seem like an awful moment to anyone else, but when I was 12, my mom tried to kill herself. It wasn't the first time and hasn't been the last. She's bipolar and a heroin addict. But this time was unusual and that I wasn't there when she tried. What triggered the attempt was me being taken by social services to live with my aunt. I didn't know much about the attempt at the time, just that my mom was in a mental hospital again and that she could be out again in a little while, then she would come visit me. Well, about three months later, I was staying at hers for a weekend visit and went into my playhouse and found an empty bottle of pills and cheap razor blades that had been taken apart. And I didn't think much of it at the time, but now as a 21-year-old, the mental image of my mother trying to kill herself in that tiny child's playhouse is just hysterically funny to me. As if suicide isn't uncomfortable enough, she had to go and try it in the most uncomfortable place I can think of for an adult to do it, and then didn't even clean it up before her son came to visit. I don't know why this is so goddamn hilarious to me, but whenever I think about it, I can't stop laughing. The kind of laugh that says, man, you need therapy. <laughs> Thank you for that. Ah, your awful some moments when there's something funny in there just just warm my heart this is um this is struggle in a sentence one and we don't get many um on the domestic violence issue and i wanted to read this one she calls herself dv survivor and shame-based failure who can't figure it out so you know i'm a fan of hers right out of the gate she's in her 50s and about living with an abuser she writes groundhog day in the shoe um, shoe is an acronym for single housing use it basically solitary confinement in the prison groundhog day in the shoe where no matter what day it is when i awaken i am still trapped with a madman madman who i must obey or suffer the penalty and there is no way out snapshot from her life Going to work in a major corporation, providing support to an international team of leaders who have no idea the double life that I lead uh, any, where any day could turn into my last. The depression, anxiety, and disordered thinking give way to mistakes and forgetfulness, and one of these days I may just disappear. If only I could figure out the way to make things better in my head. I'm pretty damn good at pretending to survive, pretending that I am just fine so that I won't lose my job, but there is a very real possibility that I may if I can't figure this out. So far, medication and therapy, attending DV support groups, and staying put together has kept me employed, but my dirty little secret will be known at some point, either when I'm dead or when I'm able to get out and get away without him killing me or me killing myself. That is heavy, and I'm sending you some some love. Um, this is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Love the Rain, and she writes, my uncle had recently... Uh, 
been diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer and it was a shock to the whole family. While I was never very close to him, I was close with his daughter, my cousin. Uh, so I was always at the hospital with her trying to give uh, her support. A couple of weeks after his diagnosis, my cousin, myself, and my dad were sitting in my uncle's hospital room talking. My uncle, who had been basically comatose all afternoon, started to groan and several alarms started going off. It quickly became apparent that he was close to death. As my cousin was holding her dad's hand and watching him take his final breaths, my dad's phone started to ring. His ringtone? Blue Oyster Cult's Don't Fear the Reaper. Oh, that is fantastic. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Just Panda. And she writes, as I type this, I wear the collar of my dear feline companion around my wrist. For two days, we maxed out every credit card and then got approved for more credit so that we could do every test we could. No amount of money could bring back the quality of our of life our princess deserved. Uh, by the way, I call Ivy our princess. Um, there in the vet's office, she died in our arms, wrapped in her blanket, laying on her favorite bed. It was the most painful moment of my life. I had never seen my husband cry so much. Our hearts had been destroyed. And then, while her soul was taking its first step into the divine love of the universe, her body releases urine that soaks my jeans in a way that makes me look like I pissed my pants. (laughs) This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Mo, and she writes... Today I read an entire book. I was so happy I cried. Let me explain. I was an avid reader, but when my depression hit me over the head really bad about five years ago, my ADHD and anxiety also reared their ugly heads. For the last five-ish years, I've spent my evenings pretty much drooling in front of the TV, not able to really read more than 10-ish pages at a time, which is okay, but not the me that I used to be or want to be. I loved reading so much as a child and young adult. Today, I got a little piece of the old me back, however fleeting. When I, get, when I got to the end of the book, I was so happy I cried. My cat was worried. That made me laugh. I don't expect that suddenly I am cured, but I think I made a step in the right direction today. You know, I think I love that one because it's realistic. In many days, it's the little victories. And if we can celebrate those... Um, I don't know, I just think, I know my days are better when, yeah, I guess sad to say I set the bar a little lower. Um, this is a happy moment filled out by Cami, and she writes, this is kind of a recurring happy moment I've had, but here's the first instance of it. There was a period of time where I was very numb to just about everything. Oh my God, that's what I've been describing to people the last couple of weeks, maybe even months that I've just been feeling fucking numb. Anyways, she writes, after a family friend had triplets, I would go over to help every day. I like babies, and three infants is almost impossible to handle alone. When I would help feed one of them and just stare at them while they fell asleep, something washed over me. It was like something woke up inside me. It's so hard to describe. This tiny, selfish person, babies are selfish, everyone knows that, that's how they survive, was content. I had made them content. They were not thankful or rewarding me in any way, but I knew they were satisfied. And I guess the knowledge that in that small moment, this baby was satisfied was enough for me. Um, 
After they were asleep, just sitting there holding them was all the comfort they needed. I didn't have to do or say anything. Being able to sit quietly, holding a full-bellied sleeping baby is one of my very favorite happy moments. In those small moments when my mind is finally quiet, I am finally able to breathe. And then finally, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Queen Bitch. And she writes, I was with a good friend five days earlier. Um, I was with a good friend. Five days earlier, I had tried to commit suicide and the doctors just let me walk away. We talked for a good while about the attempt. Then she just said, get in the car. And we went for ice cream. We drove out to the lake with her dog and sat on the cliffs eating ice cream. It was such a relief being there with her. I felt so safe and so loved. It was like my anxiety took a holiday. It suddenly felt like I did have a reason to live. I wish I could feel that way all the time. You know what? I do too. And um, and I think a lot of you guys listening feel that way. And it's uh, so maybe tomorrow or if there's a lot of the day left today, let's, let's just try to go win a little victory, have a little moment, you know, maybe pay attention to the world around us just a little bit and forget about the future for now. Forget about the past for now and just try to be present. I'm going to try to do that. Actually, right now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to wrap this show up and I'm going to go addictively play Civilization Revolution 2 for iPad because uh, I got a pretty good uh, role on the map and I'm the Russians and uh, I just discovered tanks. So uh, look out China, look out Roman Empire and look out Spain because I'm coming after you motherfuckers. I hope if you guys have listened uh, this far, you have enjoyed our episode today many thanks to Susanna and if you're out there and you're feeling stuck please know that you are most definitely not alone and thank you for listening everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way